Ladies and gentlemen, recorded in Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. It's time for Fight Night Picks with your host, Frank and Matt Allen. Coming up this weekend, UFC Fight Night, Krilov versus Span coming at you from the UFC's Apex in Vegas. You guessed it, as always, one half of your hosting duo, Craig Allen, Twitter and Instagram, at Craig Allen FNP with me to my left to your right respective socials Matt Allen FNP Jeez. and Matt from last weekend we had an all right weekend we both went seven we to did. four you end up in the positive we didn't get the main event right and ultimately we get a future top contender or an already top contender in Aaron Blanchfield getting the win over Jessica Andrade but coming up this weekend the second main event opportunity for Ryan Spann his last time out that was against Anthony Smith in a main event slot he was unable to get the win there and for Nikita Nikita Krylov, lots of experience in the UFC's octagon. His first opportunity at a main event for Krylov, surging off a win over Vulcan Uzdemir for Ryan Spann his last time out. He picked up a very, very quick win in his own respect. So when you look at this overall slate of fights, Matt, this really does feel like a fight name pick special. Seven UFC debuts on the card. Only three ranked fighters, including Krylov, Span, one half of your co-main event at middleweight, Andrea Muniz, the other ranked fighter on the card. So some people might be down on it in the respect that it's not chock full of names, but in the same respect, Matt, a lot of prospects, and that's what we get excited about here. And when you talk about fighters who are ranked, like Tatiana Suarez is a huge name. She's not a ranked fighter per se, but she's a ranked fighter if you know, and that's the real good thing. I'm actually really excited for this main card, and I think the main card does have some surprising depth to it, because for Andrea Muniz... He's kind of like the Shavkat Rachmanov, a little bit of the middleweight division. Just a guy who's so good that no big name wants to fight him. So he has to keep on fighting these outside the rankings fighters. And it just comes down to, hey, how impressive can he keep on looking until one of these big names finally accepts the fight? And for Augusto Sakai, Dante Mays, I think that's a fun fight too. Because for Sakai, he was once a headliner in a fight night. Like, he was a main event level fighter. Exactly. He's done it multiple times. So for him to now be fighting a guy like Dante Mays, that's a big drop down for a guy like Augusto Sakai. So I'll be curious to see how he looks in in that matchup because if you're Sakai and you lose that matchup I really don't really know where you go after that 13 total fights on the card you know it with fight night picks we throw it on over to the bangers the fight of the night screen let us know down below in the comment section who you have in a possible fight of the night let us know down below in the comment section who you've got it's time for the fight of the night with fight night picks all right so featured on the prelims a couple of guys looking there for their respective first UFC wins we have the ghost pepper Eric Gonzalez taking on Trevor Peak. Trevor Peak every single pro fight has ended in a finish. Eric Gonzalez is a rock'em sock'em robot waiting to happen. He's since switched gyms. He's normally been a fight science guy but he's training at a new gym so we'll talk about that once we get to that prediction video but when you look at this fight overall Matt a couple of button mashers. The fans are really going to like this fight. Exactly. There's two different kinds of fight of the nights that you can get. You can get a fight like Islam Makachev versus Alexander Volkanovsky where it's two of the most skilled fighters in the world really outthinking each other on just a pound-for-pound level. You got these two guys, though, who are going to throw hands. It's going to be a great fight, because that's the thing about Eric Gonzalez. Even if you watched him on the regional scene, he was in Fight of the Nights with pretty much everybody, no matter what their record was. And he's got one of those fun styles, where it's kill or be killed, a lot of offense being thrown. And for Trevor Peak, like you had mentioned, this guy is a finisher to the nth degree, has massive power in his hands, so I think this is going to be not a heavyweight kind of fight, because I do think it will have lasting power if it goes past that first round, but I think we're going to get a wild brawl. For Gonzalez definitely had some success in his first round against Jim Miller and if you look at our second pick Matt 
couple of Canadians. You got to give it to them. And it's not often that we get Canadians in the UFC anymore, let alone two guys exactly. fighting each other at welterweight. We have Mike Malott taking on Johan Lainess. A couple of guys that have spent, well, one guy all his life in Eastern Canada in Quebec representing Varennes. We have Johan Lainess, but a guy that went to Dalhousie, trained at Titans MMA, and he's a coach over at, oh boy, Team Alpha Male, Mike Malott. He spent some time training at home uh, in Ontario for this one as well. But a big time opportunity for both of these guys and each of them coming off their respective first UFC wins in their last times out. And hopefully this can be one of those fights where it's so exciting it can springboard them into their next opponent because I do think Malott and Lioness, they both have those fight of the night styles to where it doesn't really matter who they're in there with. It's probably going to result in a very entertaining fight and hopefully Malott and Lioness, this isn't one of those you know first round knockouts one way or the other. Hopefully it does get a little bit of lasting ability because I think both these guys can steal the show by the time this fight night's over. 13 total fights in the card. You're not wrong until Saturday night. Let us know down below in the comments section who you have in the fight of the night. So a lot of rookie debuts on this card. A lot of them on short notice as well. Carl Deaton the third, CD3. He's going to be taking on Joe Selecki. We also have, among others, Matt Trevor Peak. We already talked about him. Gabriela Fernandez. She's going to be on the card. Charles Johnson uh, making a quick turnaround. V-Mart, Victor Martinez talking about those debuting fighters. Oh, Narulo Aliv, Haley Cowan, Brennan, as well as uh, Jose Johnson, who's going to be taking on Garrett Armfield. And this is one of those cards, again, a lot of prospects. And we do have a lot of divisions that are highlighted on this one. 135, 155 exactly. as well. But it's the 205ers up in that main event. Guys with a lot of UFC experience. For Nikita Krylov, his 18th fight in the UFC. His first main event. For Ryan Spann, fought for multiple titles over with the LFA. He was their light heavyweight champ. He had a couple of opportunities on Dana White's Contender Series. And now, this is his second main event opportunity. His last time, a lot of bad blood against Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith was drawn after the fight when he wobbled him and then ended up submitting him. But for both of these guys, you can see it kind of there from the thumbnail or the abbreviated poster to the side of us. These two guys are down to bang, okay. and they also have submission abilities to back up their overall skills. And it's a wide open division too, so a big win this weekend can do a lot for both guys' careers. And for Ryan Spin, he's always seemed to be that one big opponent away from really breaking through and becoming a legitimate contender, and the same thing can kind of be said for Nikita Krylov. He's a lot more established in the rankings, of course, but when he tends to fight those top five, top six guys, that's when he will come up a little bit short, so hopefully for Nikita Krylov, we can see him find a little bit more consistency fighting these ranked opponents, because this is a big matchup. I think Ryan Spann impressed a lot of people his last time out against Dominic Reyes. Big time opportunity for both these guys and listen, you're going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks because we've got question mark kicks on Saturday, two hours before the prelims. I'm gone all week and I'm gone all weekend, but we will make sure that we get the shows out to you. We'll do them over the interwebs if we must. If there's any changes to the card, you can find them here on the channel. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Couple of Bantamweight scrappers looking for their UFC victory. Nombrero Unos coming up this weekend. We have Lobo Solitario, and that is the lone wolf, Jose Johnson, making his UFC debut. Take on Killcliffe FC zone, Garrett Armfield. And for Armfield, 
Very, very short notice UFC debut. He took on David Onama. That was a rematch. They had fought on the amateur circuit for a title. They rematch at pro. That one was at featherweight. So that's why you're going to see 145 in uh, with with an asterisk around it here on our graphic for Armfield. Too much too soon. Wasn't able to get the win in that matchup against Onama. He was then paired in a matchup, but he had to pull out due to a staph infection. So ultimately, now he draws the UFC debuting Johnson in the matchup. And Matt, when I looked at Jose, or sorry, Jose Johnson, he was a guy that we talked about a lot coming into his fight on Dana White's Contender Series. And he's a guy that had a couple of different opportunities there. One against Ronnie Lawrence, and then one this past summer against Jack Cartwright, a well-known wrestler and a Cage Warriors champion. But when I look at a guy like Johnson, it was like, geez, this guy's really got quite a record behind him. And then after his win over Cartwright, and we'll talk a lot about that, Dana White said it was a very weird fight. I don't sign guys that are 14 and 7. Your story got me. So Dana White, thinking along the same lines as Craig Allen, I guess. I guess, and maybe I'm going to zag a little bit, but I do agree with the sentiment behind what you guys are saying. Like, you don't often see people with these records come into the UFC, but what I will say about Johnson is... He didn't lose to complete scrubs on the regional no. scene. Like, he did lose to a fairly high level of competition. That's something we talk about a lot. It's, hey, you either beat guys you're supposed to beat, or you do have a hard ride up to the UFC. And I think for Johnson, he went through some difficult fights, but it's made him the well-rounded fighter that he is nowadays. And the big thing about this fight that will be really important is, A, how is Arnfield going to look in his more natural weight class? Because like you said last time out, up against not only a big 145er, but like David O'Neill had fought at 155 in the UFC. Yeah, and that, so, that was on four days notice, uh, too. Exactly. So for Armfield, we've seen this many times before. Uh, a lot of people come in, they have that one really difficult fight. Then they'll go back down to what their proper weight class is. But on Saint-Denis, that's a fighter who always comes to mind. He had a really difficult debut against Elise Zaleski dos Santos. to move back down to lightweight and has looked a lot better since. But the problem that Armfield's still going to have in this matchup is Johnson is as big as a Bantamweight can possibly get. Like, well, he looks like Tyler, the creator in the picture there. A little bit. He's not like how we joked about with AJ Fletcher, how he might have a bit of a fluffer with his height being 5'10". Johnson is all of six feet. Now, he is one of these awkward fighters to where if he is able to use all of his reach, he has a handful to deal with on the complete outside. He has good boxing. He can throw with power from both sides too. He doesn't just rely on his right hand or his left hand, but the problem is he's a fighter who hasn't really utilized the middle range all that well with his striking yet. He doesn't necessarily have the elbows. He's not a physically strong guy too, and that's kind of the weakness that a lot of these very tall fighters are going to have in a weight class. What you uh, have in height, you're going to lack in strength because you kind of have to be thin because everyone has to make the same weight class. So for Johnson, I will be curious to see how he deals with some of the clinch control that his opponents are going to bring to him, because that's going to be the game plan that the majority of his opponents do. You're not going to want to deal with a six-foot-tall bandwidth on the outside of his reach, so you're going to want to try to crash that distance. If Armfield is able to do that successfully over and over again, he should be able to wear a little bit on Johnson, but that's a difficult game plan to stick to for 15 minutes. Well, when you look at both of these guys, you consider their overall careers. For Johnson, what's the story? Struggles to take down defense. Now, he's rounded that out with good jujitsu off the bottom, but he can find himself trying to switch positions and just losing time on the mat. Now, he's not a guy that gets held down at the shoulders, pinned down like a wrestler, and then we're just, we're, exactly. we're in trouble. We're like a turtle off our back. But for Johnson, he will spend extended amounts of time on the mat. And for Armfield, the wrestling's definitely there. But one of the things that I really liked about the tape study on Armfield before the fight with Onama, and now before the fight against Johnson is... 
Armfield has really, really crisp boxing as he's making those entries. And for Armfield, he definitely has a wrestling advantage in a matchup like this against Johnson. But for Johnson, what I saw out of all of these fights, you go back to his fight against Dulani Perry, who was 36 years old in that matchup. That one was actually up at featherweight for Johnson. He goes out there and, oh boy, 12 seconds, right cross, ends up with a knockout, which was kind of reminiscent of Johnson's fight with Mana Martinez on looking for a fight where Mana lands that left hook, it drops Johnson, that's the end, Mana gets the belt, Mana ends up in a really good slot. So for Johnson, the things that I really liked, the size, of course, the right hand in all of his fights is his toughest weapon, whether he throws as a straight punch or a cross over your jab, those are some really good things that I like out of Johnson. He is very much a complete Muay Thai striker, he'll throw kicks to all three levels, the cons that I had, takedown defense, and then again, sometimes his first move equals like submission over trying to get back up to his feet, and it really can afford him some troubles in these fights. And for both of these guys, Johnson definitely had the better strength of schedule. I know we already touched on it. Armfield, you look at maybe one of the wins. He beat Stephen Graham over with FAC. Graham was a guy that had fought uh, James Gallagher over with Bellator. The losses, though, Mateo Vogel, Ronnie Lawrence, and then as an amateur, David Onama, those guys are big names. Exactly. Even Mateo Vogel, the Canadian, in that matchup, Armfield had him wobbled. He had him in really bad positions early on in that fight. Vogel was able to kind of withstand that tide and end up with the win. But out of all of this, Matt, the technical boxing, the the, the in-game adjustments in tight by a guy like Armfield, I like those. The long-range weapons, the striking, that goes to Johnson. This makes for a really difficult fight if you're trying to make a pick on this one. It should. That's why I think the wrestling of Armfield is going to be such an X-factor because we've seen this many times. Guys who can and implement their wrestling and disguise it with some of their boxing combinations tend to have a lot of success against longer rangier guys and if Armfield is able to successfully faint his way on the inside he should be able to have a lot of success but again it is a very very dangerous game plan to just march forward on a guy who has as much power as Johnson does so it's a very dangerous fight for Armfield but I do think he is well equipped with a lot of the weapons to try to neutralize some wow. of what Johnson has and, and Johnson's beaten Mo Miller Miller was on contender series one didn't get a contract they fought each other Miller was still undefeated and Miller goes out there, gets a takedown, almost has the rear naked choke, completely sunk in. Johnson fights the hands, gets it back up, and then in the second round, he gets taken down, ends up in a triangle. Mo Miller's a good wrestler. Jack Cartwright's a really good wrestler, and took Johnson down, rinse and repeat, but Johnson was able to go out there bust up those eyes. The end of the first round, was, Cartwright's yeah. eye was in a bad way. Cartwright doesn't have the striking of a guy like Armfield, but he definitely has those takedown abilities. So when you look at the odds in this one, Armfield is a slight favorite in the matchup, somewhere around a minus 160. Johnson on the comeback, plus 135. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us, they are to you. I'm going to say over-under. I think they're going to be close. I'm going to say over-under 65% Armfield. Uh, I'll say under. i say under. Oh boy, is, wow. 615 total votes, 82% Johnson, 76% by decision. So the odds have Armfield, but the fans overwhelmingly have Johnson. Now, you haven't been the biggest supporter of Jose Johnson on the channel, rather Jose Johnson, Oops. apologies. But when you look at this matchup, Matt, like Johnson's been able to go out there and beat up wrestlers. Why couldn't he do it against a guy like Armfield? Exactly. Now, I do think the first takedown attempt from Armfield is going to tell the majority of the story that this fight's going to have. Because again, if Armfield is able to successfully get that first takedown, it's going to put a lot of question marks in Johnson's mind. He won't be as comfortable planting his feet and then throwing. Because that's the one thing about Johnson. If he can plant and land after he plants, he, like you said, they're very damaging shots. They don't even need to be knocked down or knock out shots. They're just very damaging to his opponent's face. 
but I think when he does plant those feet, that is going to allow Ironfield the opportunity to duck underneath some of those punches and implement his own takedowns. Now, do I worry about Ironfield in some of those more endurance kind of grappling fights? I do, because that's when he can get caught by some better grapplers who can put him in more of a defensive position where he's not really thinking about moving forward offensively, but I do think in this matchup, Ironfield's wrestling is going to be good enough to mix with his uh, striking to get the win over Johnson, but this should be a great fight. Yeah, and I worry about this fight because I look at a guy like Garrett Ironfield uh, kind of similarly to a guy who has a terrible nickname, Harry Bush, Dakota Bush, and a guy that would mix his boxing in with his wrestling and then try and grind out some fights. He was able to do it on the regional scene, not so much in the UFC. Is he on the Ultimate Fighter? We don't know yet, but in a matchup like this, I do like Armfield ever so slightly, but Dan Helley, before Johnson's last fight on Dana White's Contender Series, said, and I quote, he went through a divorce, and then after that, I mean, a new girlfriend, he ends up winning a fight. I so, got a new girl now, and she's a lot like you. If you have Jose Johnson, you let us know down below in the comments section, but both of us going with Garrett Armfield to get the win, a big-time matchup. Couple of guys looking for their first UFC victories, 13 total fights on the card. Headlined by Nikita Krylov and Ryan Spann. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, let's get, get into it. it. Women's Bantamweights in search of that UFC win number one. We have Dana White's Contender Series Season 6 contract winner, the recently married Haley Cowan Brennan. All hail taking on the former Samurai Fight House champion of Argentina, weirdly nicknamed Fiona Eileen Perez. And Matt for Perez making her UFC debut. She took on Stephanie Edgar on short notice. It was supposed to be Perez against Zara Farron. Farron out in steps Edgar on what? Just over a week's notice. Edgar goes out there, withstands the early bull rush. And then it's Edgar going out there and getting the submission win over Perez. Now, Perez got those dunks. We know that. Perez got a legion of fans based off those dunks. And then ultimately, apparently, they think that fighting style comes off of dunks. But when you look at it for Eileen Perez, coming into the UFC, she only had one loss. It was due to disqualification. It was against Tamiris Vidal, who's now in the UFC. And Matt, how did she lose that fight? Well, she landed a knee below the belt early on in that yeah. one. Referee said, uh, uh, uh. Now that fight was taking place in a gym that had foam tiles. And the last time we talked about it, my basement looked like that. But now... It was a unique setting for a mixed martial arts. You know what I have down there? Horse stall mats. Horse stall mats for your, your, your weightlifting. All that kind of fun. But for Eileen Perez, she was having kind of fun on that foam tiles. And it was illegal knees. After that, she landed another illegal knee to a downed opponent. The referee said, no more. The fight is over. So for Perez, she still had that undefeated aura around her. But she ultimately loses to Edgar. Has to go back to the building blocks. Now she takes on somewhat of a similar stylistic matchup in Haley Cowan-Brennan. And you know Cowan-Brennan from the fact that Division One All-American. Two times over. 2012-2013. Matt, what was that in? Acrobatics and tumbling. Acrobatics and tumbling. So we've had different backgrounds coming into the yeah. UFC. I was thinking, okay. Sam Pat Hughes, famously with track and field. Uh, you've got Courtney Casey with soccer, but Kenny Florian had a soccer background too. So a couple of soccer backgrounds. But for Haley Cowan, you look at it, you look at her overall fighting style. She is kind of a tricky striker from the outside. She's got a really wide base. She, she really does. likes to throw hooks in there. But she very much is a strike to clinch, clinch to takedown, takedown to top pressure stack guard down stack guard down and try and land some ground and it does kind of require that level of progress to get from one stage to the other and that's the thing about Cowan Brennan that I do worry about when she does face upper echelon fighters because that's the thing and I've got to say this right now 
I, the winner of this isn't going to then prove to us, wow, I'm ready for a ranked opponent, and I might fight Valentina Shevchenko you one day. You fight Chelsea Chandler next. Yeah, that's a pretty good matchup, honestly. And then we learn a lot more about you after that. Because for Perez, like, I like the aggressiveness. I do like some of her strikes she is able to land when she is able to, again, plant her feet and then throw. You mentioned the knees. She does have good knees just on an opponent. Like, they're legal or the illegal. Legal, especially, but also illegally. But just for Perez, there are positive building blocks that she can improve upon in her game. The problem is, I worry about her if she does get wrapped up by Cowan Brennan, especially if this fight does make it past the first, past the second round. Because, I don't really know what the likelihood of either one of these women getting a finish is, but being honest, I think Cowan Brennan can get a lot of top pressure, can be very dominant with her wrestling. I'm not sure if she does necessarily have the high-level submission abilities that you need to go out there and get a submission win. Again, she is, like you mentioned, more of a wrestler than a submission artist. Now, she can soften her opponent up with good ground and pound and then open up a submission, but again, Cowan's not a fighter like uh, Tatiana Suarez, who we're going to talk about a little bit later, who's going to go out there and really make you feel her presence and then try to open up the submission from that. I do think Cowan is the much more well-rounded fighter, though, and when these two fighters, and you hate to, I hate to describe it like this, but when you have two lower level fighters, the one who is more well-rounded more likely is the one to win, because again, if she's able to keep it on the feet, I don't think Cowan Brand is going to get knocked out five seconds into this fight. I do think the clinch is going to be oddly important, and that's what I hope for. Hopefully we get an offensive clinch out of both these fighters, because if we just get a lot of clinch control from Cowan up against the cage, this is going to become a very stale fight very quickly. Depends on what referee it is, because if it's Herb Dean, he's going to do the old work, but if it's Mark Smith, like, he'll just let them play on. If it's uh, Jacob Montalvo, you clinch, you have fun, enjoy it. Chris Tyone, hey, have fun in that clinch, but when I look through this and I look at uh, Haley Cowan, and again, we have Cowan Brennan on screen because she married Nick Brennan, who is also another member at Blitzsport. Uh, he's a coach there. He had an MMA career as a pro, so just trying to give her the credit that she has on her Instagram. So when you look at it and you consider a fight that she had against Claudia Lechi over on Dana White's Contender Series, I actually picked Lechi to win the fight. That was my one pick of the episode because that's how our Dana White's Contender Series episode picks went, I guess. And out of that one, Cowan wins by split decision. She loses like the first, but then she wins the second. She wins the third or sorry, she wins the first and maybe the third. Like it was kind of weird. Lechi won the second round, but out of it, Dana White said, I think Haley is a solid athlete and I can't put my finger on it, but I like everything about her. I'm going to give her a shot. Dana White really just putting all his chips in there. What do you make of you that You don't one? hear NBA general managers talk like that. But they normally it, use stats and science to back it up. Not it, was, it was neat how Cowan described her kind of foray and interest in MMA. She did an article with uh, Flow Combat. Hunter Homestick. You don't hear his name as much anymore in MMA. And it was in 2006 I watched Matt Hughes versus George St. Pierre with my dad. And I told my dad I wanted to be GSP, but the girl version. So, hey, good for, good for Haley Cowan pulling together a 7-2 pro record. You look at this, though. I mean, Cowan, her third to last fight was minus 425 favorite against 1-2 and two Kelly Clayton, and she lost that fight. And that was not, that was about two and a half years ago. She loses by submission. Eileen Perez, full-time camp for this one, not in Brazil. It's actually at MMA Masters. Daniel Valverde there. Uh, you know that gym for Danny Chavez. Now Colby Covington. There's a lot of fighters that have started to move over to MMA Masters. So a big time fight in this one. We'll see who gets the win, Matt. The odds in it. Uh, Cowan is a slight favorite in the matchup. The slight underdog is Eileen Perez. You look at the total votes on top all gym. This one surprised us there to you. I'm going to say over under 70% Cowan Brennan here. I think they'll be over. I think it'll be a ridiculous amount. 
Yeah, and it's over. So 664 total votes, 81%. Cow and Brennan, 90% by decision. I think Eileen Perez goes out there, shocks the world, and submits her in this matchup. Wow. Uh, I don't know about that. I don't think we're going to get the most exciting fight, if I'm being completely honest. Again, I can't stress that enough. I've got Haley Cowan, just because ever so slightly I do favor her in the wall-rounded factor. I think she will be able to avoid the takedown, if that is the case, if uh, Perez is going heavily for the submission, unless Cowan does make some kind of drastic mistake when she is going for her own takedown. So again, I I've got Haley Cowan, but if you have a very compelling argument otherwise, you could probably change my mind. I mean, for Eileen Perez, very, very aggressive with the striking, very, very aggressive off her back and when she's on top her ground and pound's really good but her submission abilities are very good as well so i have fiona fiona eileen perez in the matchup let us know down below in the comment section who you have in this one is it cowan brennan is it perez let us know down below some big time fights left on this card including nikita krilov who's taking on ryan span in that main event you're not going to want to miss keep locked in with fight name picks we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. For the turn, Rafael Alves has been quite the turn in the UFC so far with two losses to top 15, current top 15 ranked talent, and Demiris Magulov recently retired and Drew Dober, but a big time win over a surging Mark Jacasey by submission, and now the former Titan FC champ is going to be taking on one of the hottest prospects in MMA. If you can believe it, the tragic eagle, Narulo Aliv, who's making his UFC debut, and for Aliv, undefeated the former champ over with Eagle FC and this guy I said it in our Dana White's Contender Series preview when he's taking on Josh Wick not only does he kind of look like Habib but uh, you hate to compare guys in regions of the world he fights exactly like Habib Nurmagomedov stands straight up hands down by his chest wild looping shots goes for double legs wraps his hands behind guys he gets on top of dumps them down to the ground and then just stays in guard and lands king kong type oh. ground and pound so for narillo aliv i know a lot of people on social media like even before fight week has started they're excited about his ufc debut and how can you not be now the one thing that kind of weirds me out about narillo aliv is that the ufc says on their website he was born december 8th in the year 2000 but every other website said he was born October 16th, 1999. So he's either 22 or 23. Nobody seems to know. David Ortiz kind of stats, Matt. He's been really impressive, though, for yeah. the field study that I've done. He's not one of these prospects that you worry about if his skills are going to translate at the UFC level. Oh, now, I will say this. Odd way to build a prospect with his level of promise by giving him a guy like Alvesh because... Rafael's like a difficult fighter to deal with. He throws really hard on the feet. He has a pretty good chin. He has good... Well, his takedown defense is all right, but he's definitely a good submission threat off of his back. He's an active fighter off of his back. I like this as a first fight for a prospect who does have a lot of promise, but this is a very difficult fight. This really is a sink or swim type of matchup because, again, if you beat Alvesh... I won't say it's like a Jim Miller win because that's always the example I go for. You know, hey, you beat Miller, you only got to go out there and fight really good guys. But if you beat Alvesh, what is it, Terrence McKinney next? You might go against Bond Finn? Like, well, it's like if uh, Hussein Ashkabov is able to beat Jamal Emers. A little bit, yeah. But for Aliyev, like his dominance he is able to show with his offensive grappling in that top position is very suffocating. And he does have a grappling style to where when he's on top of you, your stamina is getting drained every second, every minute that he's on top of you. Because it is that Khabib type of style to where when you're trying to post and get back up to your feet, he's wrapping the wrist, he's putting it behind your back. It's just a very draining style. And the 
thing about Alvesh is he wastes a lot of energy. Now, he does that because his style is so explosive. He has that great power behind his hands. But the thing is, there's a lot of wasted movement behind what he so, does. And I do worry that he could tire himself out in this type of matchup. So Alvesh is a really weird fighter because he was featured on Dana White's Looking for a Fight a number of years ago. He gets a win over Felipe Douglas. He kind of withstands a little bit of adversity in that fight. And then Dana White's like, yeah, we want to bring you on to Contender Series. And then he waits about a year to fight on Contender Series. He beats Alejandro Flores. He withstands some more adversity, and he gets a submission win there. Then he's supposed to have a couple of different debuts, and ultimately it's going to be Pat Sabatini. I'll throw the graphic up there, because that fight was going to be at featherweight. Now, Alvish won on Dana White's Contender Series at featherweight. He had experience at lightweight and featherweight as a pro. He had a lot of pro experience, and that was the thing. Dana was like, hey, you get too much experience. We don't sign guys like that. But you know, Dana, that's just the thing. We're going to bring you in anyway. So Alvish weighs what, Matt, for that 145-pound fight? Uh, 157.5 way above not even close so he's crying he's wearing a mask things couldn't work out he eventually ends up taking on Ismagulov, drops him in a blitz three punch blitz drops him in the first round and then looked like he forgot how to fight for a little bit and kind of well, wasted a lot of time. And that's the way that I look at Alvesh. Mark Jacasey runs in for a double leg takedown, leaves his neck out there, gets guillotined. And then in the fight against Drew Dober, first round, it's a gunslinger matchup. Second round, Drew Dober's investing in the body. And as the fight goes on, the body shots take over. And Drew Dober, at the end of it, fakes a lead hand uppercut to where Alvesh brings his hands up. And then he waits a second. Dober just lands a left hook to the body. Pop, Alvish is down, and that's the end of the matchup. I'm surprised they didn't earn Fight of the Night honors because oh, yeah. that fight was amazing, and it was fun to go back and watch. But you go down through it, you, you look at all of these fights, and again, Alvish's takedown defense is definitely spent on the regional scene and as a pro. Now, these are against really good fighters all the way through, but when you look at it against a guy like Aliv, Aliv is so good at getting guys down, so good at chaining together these takedowns. However, on the flip side... He leaves his hands low, and he's a guy that's trained out of some really good gyms. We saw him at Tiger Muay Thai. We've seen him at Kill Cliff FC. But for Aleve, he gets cracked in a lot of his fights. And I went back and watched one of them today, the fight against Krikov. And in that one, he eats a lot of big shots. Against uh, Grebrev, he eats a flying knee in the second round. And he eats it to where his neck stops all the way back. But it doesn't look like it phased him much. I just, this is how I look at Alvesh. He's like a basketball team that tries to score all their points in the first quarter, and then they just run out of gas quarter two, three, and four. Like, Alvesh can go out there and win a round against Dustin Poirier, probably. Like, Charles Oliveira, he could win the first round against any of the best fighters in the world. It's just what version of himself is he going to look like after that initial round, especially in a matchup like this? I do worry about that because if he's not able to secure the finish, and if he does have to waste a lot of his energy defensively in that first round, well, that's all fine and dandy if he is able to defend all those takedowns, but it might get a little bit easier in the second round and a little bit easier in the third round. And that's what you do worry about because if Alves is placed in a position where, okay, he's just trying to work his way back up to his feet, he's winging on a lot of his big explosive shots when he is on the feet, I do really worry about what his gas tank's going to look like as this fight progresses. Yeah, and the weird thing for me is from the jump, Alves is a guy that fights with really low hands already and they continue to go lower as the fight goes on. He throws a lot of big winging things and he's got to be Paul Felder's most unfavorite fighter because from the jump he also does flips in the cage and he's doing a lot of weird stuff and wasted energy but it does really expend itself round two round three in a lot of these fights when you look at a guy like Aleve he's able to just conserve a lot of what he has now in his last time out he took on Josh Wick the former BTC champion for Aleve you look him up on YouTube and I'll throw it up there Again, this guy is super popular. Like, if you look at it for him, 375,000 Instagram followers to Alvesh's 
almost 46,000. So a big following, a legion of fans for Aleve. He is a slight favorite in the matchup, minus 165 to the plus 135, plus 140 for Rafael Alves. Eager to see the topology votes on this one because I don't know where people are going to be. Obviously, you have an uber prospect, but... Alvish is a guy, man. Like oh, he's exactly. a guy that I don't think, even if he loses this fight at 32, he's gone by any stretch of the imagination. Because the only two losses are the current top 15 ranked guys. And this isn't a perfect comparison, but would you agree that for a lead, this is like his Jack Della Madalena versus Bam Zanameev. Like the opponent is. But he is a Meev. <laughs> uh, well, no, just for Alvesh, like he's probably a little bit too good to be in the position that he's at, especially with where the odds are. I'm surprised to see him being an underdog, especially being against such a young so, guy. I'm gonna say over under topology votes 72.5% a leave on this one. I hope under because I do think it's going to be a close fight, so I'll say under. They're over. So 643 total votes, 76% I leave, 79% by decision. For the 24% that I have Alvish, 42% by decision, 27% by submission, 24% by knockout. They're never perfect up to 100. I'll be honest with everybody, before I did the tape study, like just raw dogging it, I thought Alvish all day. And then I went back and I watched it. Aleve gets hit a lot and it does scare me in a lot of these fights and he gets hit clean. He's got to get the takedown. He doesn't defend leg kicks at all. Alvish doesn't throw a ton of leg kicks. He does throw really good body kicks he and does. that could wear on a guy like Aleve. I'm going to take Aleve ever so slightly, but... It feels like a good underdog pick on Alvish if you're going to go with him. Exactly, because he's fought a very high level of competition. Again, his record is a little bit salty because he's fought pretty good fighters through the majority of his career. That's the thing. You're not going to be 29-0 if you fought really good guys in the regional scene. That sounds like I'm throwing shade at Khabib. I'm really not, but you get the idea. If you fight good fighters, you're going to have a blemish here or there. I think this is a very difficult fight for Aleve, even though I do agree with you. I have him in this matchup, but again, if he beats Alvish, I'll be really curious to see who they match him up with next because, again, the UFC must have a pretty high opinion of him if this is the first fight that they're giving him so very curious to see where he goes after this you're gonna to see too who corners a lead because he spent a lot of time with gilbert burns but obviously fazeev at Killcliffe and at tiger muay thai so maybe you have a couple of cameos there coming up on fight night big time card coming up this weekend both of us going with the very first fighter out of tajikistan in the ufc it's narulo alive we got a guy in the corner looking on from that poster afar the tajik eagle loic rajabov is he on the ultimate fighter i don't no, but a big time week of fights coming up this weekend. Uh, Nikita Krylov taking on Ryan Spann in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. This fight was announced on Facebook by Carl Deaton III on February 17th, a week and a couple of days notice, he's going to be taking on Joe Selecki out of Jim O, replacing one of Matt's favorite fighters, Benoit Saint-Denis, the god of war. Matt, an interesting fight coming yes. up this weekend at Lightweight. Carl Deaton III is a guy that a lot of fight fans on the U.S. regional scene probably already know. I mean, he's fought with the PFL. He's fought with a lot of different organizations, and his nickname could be a couple of different things. It could be... Anishinaabe, which defines the uh, indigenous populations that are native to the Great Lakes region. So very yeah. interesting from Carl Deaton III. We once also... flew over the Great Lakes with one of your friends, and he thought it was the ocean. Yeah, he, he actually it did. It was the ocean. That really did happen. I know. I just That's not a joke. Say. But I flew over them last week. But for Carl Deaton III, oh uh, it could also be CD3. Like RG3. I like CD3, actually. That's my Cleveland cool. Browns best quarterback that we've had lately. But Matt, when I do look at this matchup and I do look at a guy like Carl Deaton III, we kind of touched on this earlier on in the card. You have a guy like Jose Johnson. He's 15 and 7. And now you have Carl Deaton, who's 
33 years old. He's 17 and five. He's finally getting that shot in the UFC and a couple of no contests on that record as well. But if you go down through this record, there are some names that you might recognize. He has a win over Justin Janes from last year. He also has a fight against Vince Murdoch from back in 2017. So there are some names that you can draw off of. And that fight that he had against Justin Janes, there are even some parallels and some positives you can draw from in a fight like this against Joe Selecki. There definitely is, but this has to be said about Justin Janes. He had lost six straight fights leading up to that, including that fight. Not six. He was not on the best stage of his no, career. See. He had lost four leaving the UFC, and then he had lost one immediately after. So for Justin Janes, he definitely was not at the best stage of his career whatsoever. And this thing about Joe Selecki, you hate to describe him this way, but I do think it does give the best credit to his skills. There's not a lot of new MMA fans who are saying, hey, Joe Selecki's my favorite fighter to watch, because he doesn't have one of those killer beat killed kind of styles. He's John, not going to stand... John Salter probably says that. Yeah, John Salter sits back with a nice glass of scotch, and he goes, I respect what Joe Selecki has to do in that cage. But the thing about Selecki is, he's very much position over submission. He is like a lead blanket when he's able to get on top of guys. The Jim Miller fight's a very good example of that. People know how good of a grappler Jim Miller is, how squirrely he can be on the bottom. But Joe Selecki got on top of him and just acted like quicksand, basically. Like, any time Miller tried to move at all, it was good risk control, stay on top of him. And that's the thing about Selecki. It is a little stale to watch. I'm not gonna lie to you guys and say this is going to be the best fight on the card by any means, but it is brutally effective. That's the thing about Selecki. He's not at, and I'm going to bring this fighter up a couple times throughout this card, because Tatiana Suarez, when it's going right, it is a beautiful thing to watch. She is getting on top of you, ground and pounding you into the ground, opening you up for submissions. Selecki's going to look for some of those submissions, and he will go past your full guard into half guard, but the thing is, if he finds a dominant position that you can't just fight out of, and normally that is the top half guard, because here's the thing, in full mount, you can get bucked out of it. It's a little bit more of a chaotic position. If Joe Selecki gets that top or half guard on you, he's just a very heavy fighter, a very dominant fighter from that position. And that's the thing about Selecki. Is he a little bit lacking on the feet? Yes, he is. But if he's able to get the fight to that one position where he's on top of his opponent and he's really turning it into an endurance grappling match, he's a tough fighter to deal with. Yeah, and if you look at it for Deaton, he was already getting ready for a fight. So this one is on short notice, but he's getting ready for one against five and two jackpot jesse smith at wxc 89 so that fight was supposed to be coming up this friday now he gets an extra day to kind of cut the weight get ready for it but again if you look at it for deaton the third total combined opponent record out of all of those fights the 24 fights that he's had as a pro 186 146 and two that's an average of seven and three quarters and 6.08. So the experience is what it is. It's against the level of competition. Again, as I mentioned, he fought with PFL. If you look at that fight against Alejandro Flores, he loses that one by split decision. I thought Flores did win two rounds out of that one. He picks up the win over Justin Janes in a fight that was fun, I guess. Like, out of it, Janes is going for some of those takedowns. Deaton's able to get out of some really bad positions in the end of it. Great takedown defense and scrambles out of Deaton throughout the fight. He's able to really do a decent job with his striking. And for Deaton, what I do like out of him, like he will kind of, he's got an odd style, almost like a Nate Diaz in a way where he's really heavy on his lead foot. And he puts a lot of weight on the ball, like the front of his toes. And then he goes out there and strikes. Now, you can get countered because he doesn't check leg kicks himself in any of his fights. And he does get countered because he leaves his chin out there when he throws a lot of these shots. The other trouble is, when you're trying to cut the cage and your opponent circles away, you put all that weight on your foot and you start to land. They're able to just get out of the way, land hooks the counter. So I've seen that out of some of Deaton's fights, but he is training at a syndicate MMA. So I think that's really going to help him out in a matchup like this, especially getting ready for a guy like Slecky. Because if you think about it, there's somebody on this card 
in a, in a similar, if not the same weight class, in Jordan Levitt that you could train with to get ready for a guy like Selecki. But we do know Selecki, he is good at getting the takedown. He is very economical with his grappling. And if you look at it in his fight against uh, Leko, his last time out, uh, De Silva, it was kind of those one of those ones where you worried a little bit. It's a majority decision win for Selecki. De Silva lost a point due to grabbing the fence in the second round of that matchup. But for Silva, you worry, uh, or sorry, for Selecki, you worry a little bit about the chin. And for Deaton, he's like Chambawamba. He gets knocked down. He just keeps getting back up again at a lot of these takedown attempts on the regional scene. So I'm eager to see what kind of a matchup we get out of this one. Obviously, it's on short notice. Selecki has that UFC experience and experience against good fighters as well. He's respected by the odds makers. He's about what? A 5 to 1, 6 to 1 favorite in the matchup. We'll have a look at the topology votes, Matt. Surprise us there to you. I'm going to say over under 90% with Selecki. Probably over. Early on in the week, that's usually what happens. 432 total votes, 96% Selecki, 57% by submission. And I do think Selecki wins in a matchup like this, but I don't think Carl Deaton III is going to be one of those opponents that makes Joe Selecki look like uh, a human highlight reel out there. He's squirmy. Does anybody make Joe Selecki look like a human highlight Like, does Udonis Haslam have a highlight reel? I just get like, kicked out that time. I just mean like for Joe like, I respect his skills, but he's not like John Morant dunking on people. He's more like Darren Collison in the mid 2010s. Just you know, a guy who knows what needs to get done. I have Selecki in this matchup again. I do like the fundamentals that he has, especially with his grappling. It's just with Selecki, it's weird. The lightweight division we talk about this a lot. It's a division where you need five, six, seven wins to finally uh, get a ranking or get a ranked opponent. For Selecki, he might even need like eight, nine, or ten just because of his fighting style and how kind of unappealing is a bit of a stretch, but you get the idea. So for Selecki, I would just like to see a new growth out of his game because I do think that'll be important for him to continue to develop. Big time matchup coming up this weekend. Both of us going with the wet blanket grappling of Joe Selecki to get the win back to Jim O, where he earned his Brazilian Jiu Jitsu black belt, or he's at least honed it and some big time matchups on this card. Already touched on it. I mean, Victor Martinez has taken on, oh boy, Jordan Levitt. That's an interesting fight. The main event, Krilov taking on Span. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Let's, Let's get into it. This past week might have been dominated in the headlines by the return of the Ultimate Fighter and the fact that Conor McGregor is on it. But listen, one day they're all going to look back and say Conor McGregor fought on an Ode Osborne card. And coming up this weekend, the Jamaican sensation, the podcaster himself, Ode Osborne, the former teacher, is going to be taking on Energy Charles Johnson. Charles Johnson, his last time out, welcomed the returning Jimmy Flick. And he bricked him. Looked really good. And he looked really good in that matchup. His striking was on point. He mixed in his kicks with his boxing, with his wrestling, with his defensive grappling. And all of a sudden, he's going out there, getting the ground and pound TKO win, where the referee was just saving Flick from himself. And for Johnson, that really kind of got rid of the bad taste out of everybody's mouth. Coming off of his split decision win over Jagas Jumagulov, where majority of folks thought that Jumagulov had won and in the debut in the UFC in 2022 for Johnson he was unsuccessful at getting the win over uber prospect Mohamed Makayev and even before that if you consider his calendar year and I'm going to talk about him in a little bit but a big win over Carlos Mota a guy who just could not pass a USADA test and got banished out of the UFC but if you look at it for Charles Johnson we know he has a pro boxing record we know it's one five and four we know he's a golden gloves champ but 
it's not necessarily that he is a boxer or that he was a steeplechase champ. It's the fact that he's a five-round fighter in three-round fights. He has good cardio. He's starting to really put all of his skills together in the MMA cage. And in a fight like this where he's going to be in an advantage for height, not for the reach, this matchup between both of these guys is really going to come down to who can lead the dance. It will. This is going to be a really interesting matchup because for Ode Osborne... He gets clipped at the worst possible times, and I just mean that throughout his whole entire career. I don't just mean isolated fights, because once O'Day Osborne, or at least me, once I start to believe in O'Day Osborne, that like, okay, top 15 Osborne, he does get finished in a really brutal way, and then it completely changes my whole entire opinion of him, but the positives are still there for Osborne. He's a very long-range striker. He himself has tremendous power when he is able to land, especially when he's able to land first. The thing is, though, Osborne's one of these strikers, and I will be curious to see what the range of this fight is, because he has great power power at his Goldilocks zone on the outside, but when guys are able to crash that distance, make him feel a little bit uncomfortable, he will start to wing that one wild shot, try to move his head a lot on the outside, and the thing about that is, it can be positive when you are actually able to evade some of those shots, but the problem is, when you keep your head down and just try to move a lot with your shoulders and your head, it's going to make you more susceptible to the big shot, and I do think that if Johnson's able to get his combinations going, because that's the thing, we might scoff at what his boxing record is, but if the question is, is Charles Johnson a good MMA boxer? Yeah, I, I would say so. He has good combinations. He can switch stances. Again, I don't know if I'll favor him at range with a guy like Osborne because Osborne does have genuinely high level power when he is able to land. I'm just going to be curious to see how is Osborne going to deal with some of the volume of Johnson because again, Osborne could be that guy who's going to load up for the one big power shot then try to move his feet and replant them. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to have that level of success in this matchup against Johnson. Osborne had a lot of success in his last fight against Tyson Nam. Now, Osborne was a big favorite in that matchup yes. too. And I remember saying, hey, if Tyson Nam's able to go out there, cut the cage, throw the hooks, he's going to have a really good night. I picked Osborne in the matchup. What happened? Osborne goes out there. He's going head. He's going body. He's making Nam miss. And then all of a sudden, Nam's able to cut the cage, land a right hook, and drop Ode Osborne. And that's the end of the fight. So for Osborne in the UFC, it's been really weird. And the other thing that should be mentioned, this fight was originally supposed to be Ode Osborne versus Dennis Bondar. And it was announced on February 14th by Alex Bakunin that Charles Johnson would be taking in on short notice. Johnson fought a little over a month ago against Jimmy Flick. Before that, just a few months ago against Algis Shumagulov. And if you look at it for Ode Osborne in the UFC, and if you look at it for Ode Osborne in his overall career, he's had a weird run between divisions. So Osborne career is 2-2 two and two at flyweight. He's 6-3 and three at bantamweight. And he's 3-0 and oh with an O contest at featherweight. I don't know if flyweight is the division for Ode Osborne, but who am I to say? Well, it does look to hurt his durability, the weight cut. And that does concern me in this matchup against Johnson. Not that Johnson's some thunderous puncher when he does land, but if he hurts Osborne because Osborne is one of these guys who, again, if he gets hurt, he's not going to go down immediately, but he doesn't recover all that well. And if he does get hurt and finds himself up against the cage, Johnson can easily land a flurry and really hurt him from that position. So again, I do agree with you. I've always worried about Osborne at this weight class, even though, like you pointed out at the start of the video, Johnson will be the bigger fighter, at least height-wise, in this matchup. Like, these are two of the bigger flyweights you will see in the UFC. I'm really eager to see this one, folks, because I have a hard time picking this one. Both guys struggle with takedown defense, but they're both good at scrambling off their backs. Both guys are susceptible to getting caught in submissions, but 
for the most part, they're pretty good at getting their way out of it. I know you might have lasting impressions of Ode Osborne against Brian Kelleher at 135. That's a really tricky fight for most guys. His fight against Manel Kopp, where Kopp weighed heavy, and then went out there and knocked him out. And for Charles Johnson, the last loss to Makayev, where he just got ground out for the large That's gonna percentage happen. of that one. So, you look at this one for the guy out of the, and I want to make sure I get it right, the Wagwan podcast for Ode Osborne, the Jamaican Sensation's last guest there, UFC light heavyweight champ Jamal Hill so good for Ode Osborne going out there doing a damn thing on YouTube Jordan Levitt's on this card he reads books on the internet and that's good too so Matt when you look at the odds in the matchup Charles Johnson's decent favorite I guess almost a two to one favorite in the matchup we have a look at the topology vote surprised us there to you Johnson's not a big thunderous puncher I don't know if the fans are all going to be going with him even with the recency bias of one guy winning by finish and one guy losing by finish I think it's going to be a little closer than that I'm going to say over under 65 Seven and a half percent Johnson. I'll say over. I'm gonna say over. It's over because the early voters are like that. 511 total votes, 83% Johnson, 44% by decision, 46% by knockout. For the 17% that I've Osborne, 67% by decision. Ode Osborne, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are gonna have the graphic in front of you. 99 yeah three of his 17 fights have gone to decision against vergara galloway and sanchez so not a lot of decision fights for oday osborne i'll be honest going into this video i really felt like i was going to pick oday osborne i like the power that he's able to demonstrate on the outside he does have tremendous hand speed too that's the thing about osborne if you are just kind of waiting on the outside kind of looking in the mirror not throwing anything and he's able to just charge up one of his big shots you're going down if he lands it like i don't really care who you are at this weight class but you had brought it up and it was a point that i really wanted to hammer or hammer home on this episode. I just don't love where Ode Osborne's durability is at 125. I think he's a big guy who does cut a decent amount of weight to get to this weight class. With Johnson, he is similar physically. I still think the weight cut has the same draining effects on him that it does on Osborne. So for those reasons, I do ever so slightly have Charles Johnson. But again, like I said, going into this video, I really did think I was going to pick Ode Osborne. But again, the cut down to 125 really does concern me for him. So I guess I'll be curious to see how he looks on Friday. Like if Will Chope fought Cole Miller. What a big odd guys. world that could be. But Matt, for me in this matchup, I'm ever so slightly going with a former flyweight champ from the LFA in Charles Johnson as well. But my reasoning is because he's able to mix in those kicks with the, the boxing that he has. Odie Osborne is a much better long-range striker, and he throws from odd angles. He gets himself in and out, and Johnson's one of those guys that sometimes he can have a hard time crowding these fighters, but what I do like out of Johnson is throws a lot of teep kicks. He'll turn it into a front kick, and he will mix in the leg kicks as well, and then all of a sudden, he kind of holds his hands like a rock'em sock'em robot, but he really gets them out there quick, so for me, I like the durability. I like the kicks out of a guy like Johnson. I think this is a really tough fight. You're not wrong until Saturday night on a pick like this, so I'd really Really like to hear from the comment section fun on this one. Maybe it's a switch for the pick on question mark kicks, but for now, both of us going with Charles Johnson to get the win in the matchup. Training a little bit out of Tiger Muay Thai for this one. He was a scholarship winner over there a few years ago, and he's training for this fight there as well. So big time matchup in this flyweight division, ever changing. Some big time fights left on this card. Krilov taking on Span in the main event. You're not going to want to miss it. Keep locked in with fighting Apex. We always say, let's, let's get, get into, into it. it. A lot of things have happened since this fight was originally booked for last April. Jordan Levitt twerked against Patty Pimblett. He, he ended up getting submitted in the matchup. But coming up this weekend, we have the return of the brick 
Victor Martinez and for V-Mart, Matt, can you believe it? I mean, listen, the guy was able to go out there, five-time All-Star, two-time Silver Slugger, wow. 32 war, in his year 35 season, when he was 35 years old, he finished second for the MVP. Matt, can you believe it that he's fighting in the UFC? Uh, yeah, a Oh, it's not bit. that former catcher that played no. for the Tigers? Oh, it's Victor Martinez that fought on Dana White's Contender Series in 2021? Where's he been? I don't know. But for Victor Martinez, Matt, baseball jokes aside, for the 5% of you that understood what I did, he's a really interesting fighter. This and it's a shame hard. that he's been out for this long because Martinez has really slick boxing. He gets taken down quite a bit. He's able to scramble out of bad positions. He is a fun fighter. And for Martinez training out of Team Fajeda and Fortis MMA, like I'm sure he makes those car rides for Carlos Diego Fajeda a lot more fun from their gym all the way to Fortis MMA. I would say. It was pretty fun going back and watching the tape study on Martinez, a former Fury champ. He was a guy that was able to go out there on Contender Series, get a win over a guy who was making his second time out of Contender Series in Jacob Rosales. And before that fight came up, the graphic popped up from Yanni the Greek, and it read, Believes he should be a minus 300 favorite or better, but not Martinez, Rosales. Wow. That pick was wrong, but we make wrong picks on the channel sometimes as well. Matt, I found it very interesting in the promo pack for that fight too, because Victor Martinez said the first fight that he ever saw was Clay Guida against Huerta. the forever prospect... Roger Huerta. So how cool is that? That's a banger Very cool. fight if you want to go back and watch it. But Matt, for Martinez, I, I like the fans by now should know Jordan Lovett. And we'll give him his flowers and we'll talk about him as well. But for Martinez, he's probably going to be forgotten about because he hasn't fought in such a long time. And that is too bad. I agree with you 100%. He's a guy who's 31 years old now. So he has missed out on a little bit of his prime. And I think that is fair to say. Also, I should say this. That was the best picture that I could find. I enhanced it. I did as much Photoshop as I could to it. He has no side profile pictures on the internet he's been just living under a rock he's got bricks in his hands though and that cannot be denied like the thing about victor martinez is he doesn't need to throw hard and it looks like he throws really hard. He does have incredible hand speed, so it is very rare that one of his shots doesn't look like it's going to land very hard. But this fight is easy to predict, but very difficult to predict because it's so easy. Is Jordan Levitt going to get lit up on the feet for as long as he's striking in this matchup? Probably. I I'd even say he gets knocked out if he eats a very clean hook from a guy like Martinez, because Martinez might lack some of the more fine skills with his defensive grappling, again, like you bring up. He is susceptible to the takedown, especially when he does plant, try to land his own shots. You can get underneath some some of his boxing combinations and take him down as a result of that. So for Jordan Levitt, there is a clear path to victory. But the problem is, that clear path is full of combinations from Victor Martinez. So... Either Levitt gets on top of him and looks great. The weird thing about Levitt is, no one's going to give you a very good opinion as to who Levitt is because of, like you mentioned, like all the extra stuff, like the twerking, the him fighting Patty Pimblett. Like, anytime you fight one of these very famous polarizing figures, no one's ever going to give you just a down-the-middle opinion on one of these fighters. But for Jordan Levitt, he's a basic striker who leaves his head very high up in the air. He will hold his hands up somewhat and throw a lot he of kicks behind it. But the problem is, if he's fighting a guy like Martinez, he's going to be able to go to the body and throw in combinations. Martinez is going to be a step ahead of him on the feet, and that's the problem. Levitt's a guy who will fall into traps, especially with his striking, and that's where Martinez can completely capitalize and have a very, very it's, nice finish. It's weird because Jordan Levitt's 3-2 and two in the UFC. He got a performance bonus in his debut against Matt Wyman, where he slammed the smile off his face, which oh is scary. Goodness. 
And now we're here. So it's a weird fight for Levitt. It feels like wanting to get him back on track against bit. the guy making his UFC debut that's all been but forgotten. But for Martinez, again, Saif Saud, Carlos Diego Fajeda, the two main guys that are going to be there and around the gym. And when I do look at everything, it's weird because... Like, when I look at Martinez's fight, he's fought at lightweight, he's fought at welterweight, he's fought some catchweight fights, he's had issues making the weight for 155, but, like, body type-wise, he looks like a guy that would fight at featherweight. Like, he's not very tall, and he's, he's kind of got a little bit of meat on the bone, so I don't mean any disrespect by that whatsoever. It's just, to me, it's it's odd to see the weigh-ins for a guy like that, and for Martinez, too. I say he can sweep off his back, and he gets out of some of these bad positions, but when he's getting taken down in a lot of these fights... It's a lot of single leg takedowns from either open space or up against the cage. Jordan Levitt's favorite move, high crotch single leg He's takedown in every single fight. So for me, there's definite pass to victory for both guys. Obviously, you know the jiu-jitsu credentials for a guy like Jordan Levitt. Obviously, you know, the staying power, the lasting power for a guy like Martinez, because he got dropped in the first round of his fight against Rosales, and then he came back and landed 54 significant strikes in the second round, 58 significant strikes in the third round, and out of all of these fights, again, even the one against Nico Echeverri, which was now three and a half years ago, he knocks him out, but he gets taken down really early in that fight. So a lot of things that you like in a Martinez, bricks in his hands, hand speed's great, mixes in a leg kick. Jordan Levitt does the Anthony Smith, like, Muay Thai knee where he walks it. in. But he does it, like, Smith will do that back against the cage to offer up a little bit it of a different look. Cheeks. Yeah, and Jordan Levitt does it, like, as he's trying to walk you down, but it's not like he's Sitichai. Like, he it's does- not like he's Jose Aldo. Like, that's the problem with Levitt. It's unnecessary movement on the feet. There's two different kinds of defense. Like, think about fighters who hold their hands up. That is one form of defense. Like, that's good. Some fighters don't even hold their hands up. Good thing about fighters like uh, Dustin Poirier. Like Marchand like Proctor. You know, he just well, walks around. Or like Conor McGregor in his prime. Then you think about fighters who have a reactive defense, who not only hold their hands up, but can react to the punches as they're being thrown towards them. Jordan Levitt only puts his hands up. He doesn't necessarily have the next level movement that you would look for from a pure striker. Well, when you do look at this one, the former... STFC staple and Fury lightweight champ. He's a slight underdog in the matchup. Jordan Levitt slightly favored to get the win. We have a look at the topology votes in this matchup, Matt. I'm going to say over under 70% Jordan Levitt. I think the fans are going to go with him. In this I think one. it'll be over. Yeah, I do see him as being Just due to the inactivity, and it is. So 699 total votes, 81% Levitt, 52% by decision, 40% by submission. Matt, these guys each have like definite strengths over one another. It's tough to say who's going to be able to get the win because I've seen Martinez withstand onslaughts by guys like Jordan Levitt and vice versa. I've seen Jordan Levitt kind of struggle against certain strikers. Trey Ogden, did he win that fight against Jordan Levitt? Chintzy decision, maybe, but Levitt was able to kind of grind it out, make it boring in certain aspects as well. Now, Levitt's one of those guys. He has really, really impressive submission victories on his record. The win over Matt Sales was one where you don't see a lot of inverted triangles like he was able to get out there. He's got Anaconda wins, heel hooks as well over Johnny Walker, but not that Johnny Walker. So for Levitt, very creative once he does get it down to the mat. But that high crotch single leg could be a huge difference maker in this one. And I think it will be. That's why I do have Jordan Levitt in this matchup. Could he get knocked out in the opening, what, two seconds of this fight? Yes, he probably could. But again, I'd rather go with the devil I know over the one that I don't know. And for Martinez, unless he does show me a very impressive performance against a guy like Jordan Levitt this weekend, it is going to be really difficult to just put him in the whole hierarchy of the lightweight division. Because let's say he goes out there and knocks out Jordan Levitt in the first round. 
You probably gotta fight, like, a Bonfim brother now. Like, the lightweight division is as stacked as any division possibly can be, so even if he does go out there and beat a guy like Jordan Levitt, it's just nothing but difficult fights afterwards. So, I do have Levitt because of the well-roundedness of his grappling. I think he's gonna be able to hold Martinez down if he is able to get him down, so that's why I have Levitt. Ferreira's one of those guys. I mean, Diego was ranked in this division, what? so he is a great guy to train with, and he can drown you in those, or on the mat and in the gym, but for me, I will go with Levitt ever so slightly, but guys, Victor Martinez, good shot as a slight underdog in this matchup. He's a great striker, so look out for Martinez in the matchup. But both of us going with Jordan Levitt, a big-time matchup in this lightweight division and light heavyweight. It's on the marquee. It's on the poster. Krilov taking on Span. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Name Picks, we always say. Let's get into it. Newfound social media star, Canadian Jasmine Jazz Divisius. She's going to welcome another Brazilian UFC newcomer, Southpaw, and Gabby, Gabriela Fernandez. And if you look at her for Jazz Divisius, the last time out, she took on Natalia Silva. Silva was out for years. She broke her arm. She came into that fight and looked like a completely different fighter. And Gabriela Fernandez does share some similarities. She's good at striking on the outside. She is a Southpaw. She throws hooks from her hips. And her ground game is... Not that bad, but Good if, submission, if yeah. you do look at it in this matchup, it is a little bit of oil meets water based on the striking of Fernandez and the wrestling pedigree of somebody like Jazz Davisius, but there definitely are some X factors to this matchup. Originally, it was supposed to be Cast Iron Courtney Casey taking on Jazz Davisius, and about a month and a day ago, it was reported by Marcel Dorf that Gabriela Fernandez would be taking this fight, and for Fernandez, she is the LFA interim flyweight champion and she's one of those fighters that really was able to not sink but swim with the lfa taking down a lot of cards to brazil and we saw that with the bombfin brothers in particular it was gabriel that was able to become a champ there good. end up on contender series and end up into the ufc fernandez cut from that same cloth and if you look at it for fernandez too you look at the level of competition it's a little wishy-washy but her very first fight as a pro in 2018 was a first round knockout win over Yasmin Lucindo, who's now in the UFC, exactly. and she finished her. So, a really good win there. She only has the one loss on her record, does Gabi Fernandez. Now, she does struggle with her takedown exactly. defense in some of her fights. Her one loss is to Maria Silva, who ended up on Dana White's Contender Series and ended up losing. But you go through all of these fights, she is a very impressive, long, rangy type of striker that throws a lot of power. And she's able to finish, you know, majority of her opponents, the Lucindo fight, uh, among others. So I do like what I've seen out of Fernandez, but a tough fight for Jazz Davisius as well, who switched up part of her training camp from Niagara Top Team to American Top Team. She's done a lot of interviews before this fight, saying, you know, among other things, she's trained with Yoni and Jacek, but down there at the gym, you got Carolina Kovalkiewicz, you've got Maeda Buena. Silva just got a win last it's weekend. Nice to see. I've seen Yawanda at ATT quite a bit as of late, helping out a lot of fighters. Makes you wonder if she is coming back, but that's a great thing to see because someone like Yawanda and Jacek has forgot more about MMA in the last five minutes than I will ever know in my whole entire life. So having a resource like her at the gym is a very high level thing, but that's the thing. This is the issue I keep on going back for with Fernandez. We have seen a lot of fighters like her in the UFC who have very similar strengths and very similar weaknesses. Either A, have a ton of success to where they just finish every Everybody, or at least like their first five opponents till they start fighting upper echelon opponents or they just struggle with that wrestling defense and it's the one up, hole that they're never really able to fix. You end up like it's Telenuna as a strawweight. Exactly. That's a very good comparison because for Fernandez, is she a great offensive fighter? Yes, she is. Like you said, her hooks are very good. She's very aggressive on the feet when she's able to fight at her own pace, but... 
even on the mat, does she have good submission uh, submissions? Yes, she does. But it has to be at her pace, and she has to be the one dictating the positions for a lot of her success to come. Because if Fernandez is trying to create separation, being forced to work and not being the one forcing her opponent to work, that's when she can kind of fall behind in some of the techniques. And that's what I worry about in this matchup. Because I think it is fair to say, are the highs higher for Fernandez in this matchup? I think that's probably fair to yeah. say. I would say her striking is uh, probably more impressive than anything Jazz Davicius can do. But Jasmine does have the one wrestling X factor that can really put out a lot of the offense that Fernandez is able to bring into the cage. But I will say this, and I guess I'll bounce this off of you. I didn't think very much of Silva when she fought Jazz Davicius, and then she was able to beat her. Am I just putting Jasmine yeah, down too no, much yeah, because of that one I, I think so, because Silva looked really good against Teresa Bleda, who was like a force out. No, no, she was really good outside of the UFC, and Silva was able to stifle that. And Jazz Davicius went 0-6 on takedown attempts against Natalia Silva. And if you consider it for somebody like uh, uh, Gabriela Fernandez, I mean, not that long ago, back in 2019, she was fighting on Thunderstrike Fight League 19 Christmas time over in Poland. Hell of a name for a card. That's three years ago. That's a while ago. Yeah, I guess so name. it is now. But if you look at it for Fernandez, good striking, poor level of competition. You go back and watch the fights on those lower level regional scenes and with the LFA. Her second to last fight against Oliveira, uh, she ends up winning her opponent tops due to strikes. She continues to hit her to the body, landing really good kicks. That's it. Like, I look at Gabby Fernandez as one of those fighters, kind of like OSP doesn't do it anymore. OSP's not like the old OSP, but what did he used to do? He'd throw that body kick from Southpaw, he'd throw it up to your head. Fernandez does the same thing. Big, long-rangey kicks, but in that fight against Oliveira, she walks out to Can't See Me by Tupac, which is the hardest song you could ever That's walk out so to. Cool. And then in her fight against Martin, she walks out to Ambitions with a Bussy by the Horny Boys. Matt... Gabby Fernandez. Can I get LFA. a hold of her playlist? Like, I, I don't know who's been putting it together for her. Maybe she's into that. Like, she just rips the Portuguese music up. Forget about it. I'm all about the hardcore American rap songs. But when you do look at these fights, Matt, I do like the striking. I, I do like what I see from distance. But again, she does struggle with some of these takedowns against not, like, not Jazz Davizius level fighters. That is very true. I just keep on going back to what happens to Jasmine if she's not able to get the takedown consistently in the matchup. We have seen her somewhat struggle on the feet because not that Jasmine is a poor striker. She's just not a developed one. There's not a lot of variety to what she's able to throw on the feet. And that's why I do think she might fall behind in a lot of these striking engagements. I do think it's as clear cut as if Jasmine can get the takedown, she's probably going to be able to win. Now, will it be the most entertaining of fights if she is able to rinse and repeat for the takedown? Probably not because the thing is, if she does create a lot of separation to try to go for a submission... That will allow Fernandez at least a little bit of ability to buck her off and try to get back up to her feet. But hopefully this is just an entertaining fight for the fans. Fernandez is a slight favorite in the matchup, making her UFC debut. For Jazz Davizius, she was able to hit as an underdog against Kay Hansen. She was a big, a pretty big favorite against Natalia Silva. So right now, Matt, I'm 0-2 at picking Jasmine Jazz Davizius fights in the UFC. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there to you. I'm going to say over-under. Fernandez is a slight favorite. I think she'll be... Over under 62.5% Fernandez. I think it'll be over. They've been pretty one-sided. Yeah, and those early weak voters are usually kind of more to one side. So 74% Fernandez on topology, 77% Harvard to win by decision for the 26% that have Jazz Divisius. 
87% by decision. And when you look at this matchup, again, the camp change for the majority of it for Jazz Divisius, iron sharpening iron there with the striking. Somebody like Marina Moreau is probably going to get you ready for a fight like this against Fernandez, offering up a little bit of that striking. But when it does come down to this one, does the 2016 silver medalist at the Canada Cup in freestyle wrestling and Jazz Divisius, does that win it out for her? Or does the former LFA champ continue that winning role looking for another one? I'm going to look dumb no matter what I say, because again, if Fernandez wins, it's going to be a dominant striking display. She's going to defend a lot of takedowns. She might even be able to get her own trip takedown or something and even look good with some of her own grappling. But if she looks bad, it's going to be a lot of porous grappling defense. It's going to be a lot of her getting held down to the mat. It might not make for the most exciting fight if Jasmine's able to win, but her 1x factor does directly counter a lot of what Fernandez is able to do. So I guess I will pick the, the slight underdog in the Canadian and Jasmine Jastavicius. But again, if she's not able to win this, matchup, then maybe I will think differently of Fernandez moving forward, because I do like the positives of her skill set. It's just, the negatives somewhat concern me about her overall season. Well, and that's it. Like, when you look at Silva, I didn't even know what we were going to get coming into the UFC. You could watch whatever tape you wanted. It was years since she had taken a fight, and then she goes out there and looks amazing, and then in her next fight she's able to defend a lot of takedowns, get a knockdown, and then beat Bleda. And when you look at this matchup, Fernandez has been taken down by lesser fighters than Jazz Davizius, but she does fight in a similar way to somebody like Natalia Silva. I like that. I like the counters from the southpaw and somebody like Fernandez. So I will go with the favorite in the matchup. I'm going Fernandez. Matt going with the Canadian and Jasmine Jazz Davizius. So a big time matchup in this one. Let us know who you have in these fights. Coming up this weekend, Krilov and Span in the main event. You're not going to want to miss keep locked in with fight night picks we always say let's get into it Lightweights looking for their respective first UFC wins. We have the Ghost Pepper, Eric Gonzalez, taking on Alabama's Trevor Peak, who's coming off of a big time win on Dana White's Contender Series this past summer. He gets the knockout there over Malik Lewis after withstanding so much punishment in the first round. And Trevor Peak's one of those guys. His life story is crazy, overcame addiction, turned it into faith, and then turned it into a pro career where he's won every single fight. And they've all ended inside of the distance. And this guy absolutely bangs. And when you look at it for Eric Gonzalez, we said it in the intro for this entire card. He's a rock'em sock'em robot in an MMA cage. So when you put these two guys together, on paper... It should be an absolute banger of a fight of the night, Matt. I could not agree more. I think this should be a very entertaining fight. If you've gone back and done the film study of Trevor Peak, you know this guy's about this life. And good on him, first of all. Like you had said, got his life together. Now he's in the UFC. Very commendable of him. But he fight, fights like a very violent MF'er, which is kind of wild because for Peak... I am very curious if that's going to be the best style to fight a guy like Eric Gonzalez because Gonzalez himself is very open for that kind of a fight. I know we've seen Gonzalez get hurt in many different brawls before, but still, that's where he himself is a very dangerous fighter. So be curious to see if Peak is just willing to throw down and have one of those classic brawls because if he is going to have one, we all know what kind of punching power he has. We all know the boxing combinations that a guy like Peak possesses, but he might leave himself open for the big counter shots of Eric Gonzalez. And that's why I'll be curious to see how does Peak go into this fight fighting because I will say, on one hand, I think the brawl could really help him because, again, we've seen some of the defensive liabilities from a guy like Eric Gonzalez, but on the other hand, it might leave the window open for Gonzalez to just have some of those 50-50 exchanges with So, Peak. I listened to interviews that both of these guys did with MMA Sucka, and by extension, James Lynch, and in them, Eric Gonzalez said that he switched up his camp, so he's been a fight science guy for the majority of his career. For this one, at CMMA, and you might go... 
Who trains the CMMA? I know that, Jim, right? Yeah, the War Master, Josh Barnett, but also, and a guy who's going to be in his corner, uh, you know, Chad George. There's also uh, David Waters there. But for fighters, Victor Henry trains out of that gym. Weber Almeida, you've seen a little bit with Lyoto Machida. If he ever does train in around California, it's out of that gym. But a good mix for Eric Gonzalez to get ready for a matchup like Trevor Peak and kind of add a little bit of variety to his overall game. And he's really utilized uh, a mental coach to get ready for this one to get himself into the right headspace to take on a guy like Peak and vice versa. So for peak, James is talking to him. He says, who are you training with? And he said in his own words, uh, Torres Finney, a guy who's 4-0, who's a middleweight. That's the guy who he's sparring with uh, at Agoji Combatives. That's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But he also said, and these, this is a quote, somebody asked me how much the 100% finish rate means to me. Everything. So... Trevor Peak's coming in to bang, bro. So this is a good time fight. This is a big time fight. And for Peak, what you might not know about him, that fight against Malik Lewis, you'll see on numbers on a page, wins it in the second round by finish. He got beat to a pulp in that first round and then came right back a ticking. And it wasn't even that he got beat and then came back. It was in the last minute and a half of the first round, Lewis just blew his load. He did. And he didn't have anything left. And Peak just continued to go at it. The fight against Worthy. Boom goes the dynamite and it's over. So Peak definitely has that type of power. His wrestling defense can struggle, but he has that Derek Lewis just get up in him. Whereas for Eric Gonzalez, he's well-rounded in his own right. Now, it was a little weird because the commentary when he's taking on Terrence McKinney said, and I, I think it was Bisbing that said it, but if I'm wrong, I'm wrong and I apologize. Somebody said it in that fight. He should go out there and wrestle against Terrence McKinney. And I thought, what? No. Terrence McKinney can wrestle. And Eric Gonzalez tried to initiate the wrestling, which ended up turning it into a spot where McKinney got it down to the mat and got him submitted. And even in, if you go back, Eric Gonzalez took on Jim Miller in his UFC debut. Cracks Jim Miller in the first round. Has him on skates. But in the second round, Colcock left hand at the start of it. As Gonzalez walks in with his hands down. And that's where Miller's able to go out there and get the win in the matchup. So again, both guys can show well-roundedness. Both guys are rock'em, sock'em type of punchers. I love the fight. I punch my notes. It should be a great fight. I just worry that every time Gonzalez does get hit, he wants to kind of get it back, almost like a Fabricio Verdum, Steve Miocic. It's an example we bring up quite a bit. It's, hey, I just got cracked. Oh, let me go back in there and try to get it. And for Gonzalez, we have seen that a number of times. When he hurts his opponent, it can almost be the worst possible thing for him because he gets that overconfidence that you never really want to see from a guy who does have some of those defensive liabilities because for Gonzalez, is he a talented striker? Of course he is. He has very heavy hands. He is an explosive striker. The problem is, he leaves himself so wide open when he does throw his own shots that if Trevor Peak is able to measure some of the distance, force Gonzalez to miss some shots, and really open him up for the counters, I could easily see Peak putting him down with one or two clean shots in the first round. Now, game. originally the matchup was supposed to be uh, Gonzalez against Darius Flowers, which is wild because Darius Flowers was going to try and be Jared Cannonier and go from middleweight to then welterweight to then lightweight. And it would have been his first lightweight fight of his entire career. So kudos to him, but it didn't happen. So Flowers is out of the matchup. And Trevor Peak was supposed to get the returning about five years away, Alex Reyes. That fight was scrapped. They threw these two guys together. So now we get just a hellish type of matchup. Peak is a slight favorite in the fight. We have a look at the topology votes. Surprise to us as they are to you. Matt, I threw a punch in this video, which is wild. I'm going to say over under... 70% peak. I think it'll be over. I really there's, do. There's no losses on that. Oh, my. 503 total votes, Just... 94% peak, 87% by knockout. The other thing for peak, his fights that he's gotten ready for, three-round fights and, 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 and above... 
For Eric Gonzalez, he has had those opportunities in combate tournaments where he's had three-round fights, he's had one-round fights, he's had uh, a hodgepodge of fights on that record. This is my big issue with the Eric Gonzalez that we've seen in the UFC. I gotta be honest, you can go back and watch our earlier videos, I wasn't that impressed by him when he came into the UFC. Like, again, he's an exciting fighter, his fights are always going to be fun to watch, but I didn't project an overly high ceiling for him. Now, I understand, he has fought a very high level of competition for yeah. his two UFC fights. Like, Jim Miller and Terry McKinney UFC wins leader. are two very talented fighters, and I understand Miller's not in his prime anymore, and McKinney might not be the guy that a lot of people thought he was, but those are two very talented and technical fighters. I just keep on going back to what my opinion of Eric Gonzalez was before he came in the UFC, and it's very similar to what I still think of him, and for those reasons, I think Peak's going to be good enough defensively with some of his takedown defense. I do think he is going to have to defend a couple shots from Eric Gonzalez, but I still think Gonzalez is going to be able to learn all these new tricks at the age of 31 after suffering a couple losses. I love what I heard out of Gonzalez in that interview that he did with Lynch, and for Trevor Peak, I mean, a Ruby Sport type of guy, and you look at the way that he's in some of these fights, and it's all... Oh, cast no breaks. Everybody says it. But when you do look at it for a guy like Trevor Peak, I mean, he's able to withstand the flurries of a lot of his opponents and then go out there and get the finish. And to beat a guy like Malik Lewis, I, I think that translates well to a fight like he's got in front of him against Eric Gonzalez. So I do have Trevor Peak, but guys, this is a super volatile matchup. Either one of these guys could walk away with a finish, and I don't think it would surprise anybody whatsoever. If you've done the tape study on this one, so both of us going with Alabama's own Trevor Peak to get the win in the matchup. An insane fight coming up this weekend at Lightweight. Some big-time fights left oh, on this card. Ooh, boy, the main event, Nikita Krylov, Ryan Spann, light heavyweight finish. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. An all-Canada type of matchup coming up this weekend. It's a Fight Night Picks special. We have Ontario to Nova Scotia to California's own proper Mike Malott, the former World Series of Fighting Man. He took on Hakeem Dawadu there, and I'll throw up the picture. They were very young and fresh-faced in that matchup. Dawadu threw the blitz on him and won by standing TKO. That's the only loss on Mike Malott's record. Miss weight for featherweight in that matchup. He is now a welterweight, taking on Varen Quebec, Canada's own, the White Lion, Johan Lainess, a guy that trains out of Académie Connexion with Pat... Cote, Matt Pat Cote, a legend of Canadian MMA, is he? Oh, without a doubt, Patrick Cote, he's one of those weird guys who isn't in the Hall of Fame, but it's like just a quality role player for a basketball team that you enjoy, just someone who's been in your life for a very long time, like... He's my Jonas Valanciunas, if you will. That's what Patrick Cote is to me. Well, Matt, for the White Lion, Johan Lainess, you look at his UFC career, and it's been a little bit of a mixed bag. I mean, even before that, he was over at CFFC. He became a champ over there, got some really gutsy wins. He beats Justin Burlinson on Dana White's Contender Series, loses to Gabe Green, and gets knocked the F out yeah. in that matchup. And then he takes on Darian Weiss and he wins by split decision. That was a little bit of a different fight. Now, I should say, in the fight that he had against Gabe Green, he landed one of the biggest right hands I've ever seen in my entire life. And he face-planted Green. And then somehow Green came back out of that. Lainess started to slow down and Green started to build up and he took over. But in the fight against Darian Weeks, it was constant pressure from Weeks on Lainess. And then Lainess was able to kind of land some of his shots from the outside. It was a hard fight to try and judge in that one. And 
But overall, it just it, it was a weird one compared to Mike Block going out there, getting bloodied up and outstruck by Mickey Gall until Gall steps in with his hands kind of down. Malak goes right hand, left hook, and face plants Mickey Gall. I think this could be a really fun fight to watch for as long as it lasts because what Johan Lainez is able to demonstrate in his UFC career up until this point is he doesn't do it with pressure all that well. I think that's fair to say. But he's going to meet you with power. That's how he's going to meet your pressure. Now with Linus, it is interesting because I do think he does slow down over fights. He doesn't necessarily throw in combination all the time, which is interesting because when he does throw in combination and make his opponent think about defending the legs, defending the body, defending the head, he becomes a much more devastating style of a striker when he is becoming that three-level kind of a guy because he does have very heavy hands. He can switch stances a little bit, and I agree with you 100%. The strike that he landed on Gabe Green, it's like... Pinel Daryush, uh, Mateusz Gamrot, like the overhand Daryush hit him with, like, it's on a short list for the most powerful non-knockout strikes you will ever see in your life. I just think for Lioness, I'll be curious to see if the pressure that he doesn't necessarily deal with all that well is going to be a recurring theme throughout his UFC career, because how did Gabe Green break him down? You're right, uh, Lioness did slow down as that fight went on, but it was the constant pressure and the constant just physicality of a guy like Gabe Green. He's always doing something, he's making you think he feels a lot bigger than he really is in the cage. And that's another point that I wanted to bring up for this video. Johan Linus 90% of the time is the biggest welterweight you will ever see. So it, it was said too by CM Punk in the fight against cuts with CFFC the fact that Linus was what? 193 so the morning huge. of the fight for the title. And Linus is huge whereas Malat used to be a featherweight and he's built himself up into exactly. a, a welterweight. But I really want to see both these guys square off on Friday after weigh-ins because I would assume Linus is still going to be the bigger guy even though height and reach is, is pretty well equal. I do, and this is where I'm almost going to zag on myself. I actually think Mike Malott's speed advantage is going to be a big factor in this match, yeah. because the thing about Lioness is he's not a slow puncher by any means, but they are somewhat telegraphed if you are an intelligent striker on the outside. If you keep your eyes open, you can see what strikes he is throwing towards you, and they do slow as the fight goes on. So if Mike Malott is able to go in, get inside the pocket, get outside from some of those bigger shots of Lioness, I could see him having a lot of success, but like you had brought up, Johan Lioness is a much higher level striker than even a guy like Mickey Gall. And I know Gall has made improvements throughout his career. I think that's fair to say. He's definitely improved on his boxing. He has a good jab. But but, but Lioness has genuine consequences when he lands his power shots unlike a guy like Gall. Well, and if you watch the Mike Malott fights, Contender Series, you watch him on the regional scene, like he fought in Eastern Canada, because that's the thing. For Malott, he went to school at Dalhousie which again, every time I'm going to say just boo to Dalhousie, but he went to school at Dalhousie and he started to train at Titans MMA, which is a gym that we've seen Gavin Tucker out exactly. of. And we see a lot of fighters. Like if you watch Fight League Atlantic with Derek, you know that, hey, you're going to have a lot of fighters at a Titan. So that's what Malat rep for his early MMA career. And then somehow he made his way down to Team Alpha Male and he became the Jiu-Jitsu coach, the Muay Thai coach, and the boxing coach. And if you watch the fight that he had against Gall, John Annick says in that one, Malat's got that experience of cornering like 15 to 20 different UFC fights. And that was the thing. We would see Mike oh, Malat in that. all of these corners for years and go, why the hell isn't he fighting? Because he was a really good fighter. And then all of a sudden, he started to pick it up in the last couple of years. He has his own fight with CFFC against Solomon Renfro where he gets hit and dropped early. And then he comes back and he ends up getting the finish in that one against Smitritsky. Wasn't all that close in that one. And even against Mickey Gall. Gall was landing, Gall was landing, like he had Malat on the back foot, and then all of a sudden Malat plants, 
right hand, left hook, drops Mickey Gall. So, again, the commentary was pretty bullish on Mickey Gall, leaving his chin up in the air for the majority of that fight. But Malat was wearing it on his face. And that's the thing. Renfro fight, Gall fight, the fight that he had against Hakeem Daudu. One thing that Malat can struggle with too, and most fighters do is the pressure but for Malat he reminds me of a fighter like we had last weekend and maybe it's the CFFC connection it's cheap but a guy like Blake Builder I guess it's two weeks ago Builder's got to get hit Builder's got to get dropped Builder's got to get into a fight before he really starts to mount his own offense and to me watching Mike Malat fights I find myself I could be completely wrong that he's kind of cut from that same cloth which is kind of worrisome against a guy like Johan Lainess has got power like this definitely I just think Malat he is so much more well-rounded in this matchup that even if he does struggle with some of the power on the feet he will have the answer in terms of his wrestling and his grappling if he isn't able to succeed with what I assume he should be able to and we'll see because Johan Lainess about a month ago picked up his Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt from his coach Mathieu Davio over there at Academy Conexion so for Johan Lainess he is the underdog Mike Malat's a little bit over a two to one favorite in the matchup we have a look at the topology both surprise to us as they are to you Matt the all-Canadian matchup I'm going to say over under 70% for proper Mike Malone. I think it'll be over. It's going to be over. It's way over. So uh, 670 total votes will say 91% Malat, 65% by knockout. For the 9% that have Lioness, 57% by uh, uh, knockout as well. So a lot of people anticipating a knockout between a couple of guys who like to strike. For me, yeah, I agree with you. I think that, yeah, Mike Malat has a definite speed advantage. You look in these fights, he's throwing in combination. He still does have that issue where you mix in a couple of power shots in your combination, you send him back, and once he gets behind the black line, he can really struggle. Lioness could definitely do that. I'm ever so slightly going with Mike Malott, but more than a 2-1 to one favorite. It's, just, it's, it's a little weird based on the fact that, again, I assume Lioness is going to be a lot bigger too. You're right. Lioness just moves backwards, though, is my big issue with this fight. Like, Lioness in 90% of his UFC careers had his back up to the cage and been completely square. If that's the case in this fight, Mike Malak can just run backwards at the face of any danger, and then if Lioness does follow him, shoot him for a takedown and be the more well-rounded fighter. I think Malak can hang with uh, Lioness on the feet, which is where Lioness specializes in, and I definitely favor Malak if it does hit the mat, so for those reasons, I do have Mike Malak. Both of us going with proper Mike Malak out of the Burlington Ontario area. We're not going with the Quebecer Johan Lainess in the matchup. I really want to hear from the commenters out there because I know a lot of people are fans of both of these guys here on the Fight Night Picks channel. So let us know who you have in the matchup. Some big time fights on this card, including Krilov versus Span in the main event. Going to want to keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Coming up this weekend in her first action in three years, eight months, and 17 days, we have the Ultimate Fighter Season 23 winner at Strawweight, the former number two ranked fighter in that division, Tatiana Suarez, representing Extreme Couture, taking on Montana De La Rosa in a big time matchup on this card this weekend because, Matt, as I said, you pull yourself back to 2019. The last time that Tatiana Suarez fought was back in June of that year. And I'll show you the rankings right there. Suarez was at number two. She picked up a win over now Nina Nunes. And if you look at it, Matt, what do you think the number one song was back in June of 2019? The Raptors won the title like that month. So I want to say Money in the Grave by Drake might have been popping then. Uh, Old Town Road by Lil Nas X and Billy Ray Cyrus. The number one movie, Secret Life of Pets 2. So a big time win there for Tatiana Suarez was ranked 
number two in the division, but she's had neck issues throughout exactly. her career. Now, that was one of those things. It derailed her Olympic dreams of being a wrestler in 2012. She was having some neck issues. They found cancer. So then she really kind of had to switch things up. Out of that, she then kind of found herself into MMA. Undefeated record as it is now. She wins the Ultimate Fighter season 23. But you look at the wins in the UFC. Win over uh, Amanda Bobby Cooper. That was to win the season. She beats Viviani Pajera. She beats Alexa Grasso, who's going to be challenging for Valentina Shevchenko's belt in this division. She beat Carla Sparza. Took her down many, many times in that fight. And then, of course, gets the win over Nina Nunes. But again, for Suarez... Multiple knee issues, multiple neck oh, yeah. issues as well. I listened to an interview that she did about a month ago with Helen Yee. She kind of talked about that, but also she said in the past couple of years, like maybe one fight, maybe two fights at flyweight, then she's going to go back down to strawweight. When she talked to Helen, she said, probably just the one fight at flyweight, then I'll go back down to strawweight. So interesting to see what we get out of her in a matchup like this. Talked about the fact that she's kind of bulked up with her legs just due to the fact of, you know, rehabbing the knee, so to speak. So you know how good of a grappler Tatiana Suarez is if you've watched her wrestle. She's a two-time bronze world champion in freestyle wrestling at 121 pounds. And boy, like, if you... Just the fight against Carla Sparza. Sparza like, was a champ before that and became a champ after that. And she drubbed her in that fight. This fight's going to look exactly like that fight if Tatiana Suarez is even 70% of the fighter she used to be. Like, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to Montana De La Rosa, but again, I brought this example up many, many times. Tatiana Suarez sorry, is a world-class wrestler. I think we can all agree on that. It was an illness that caused her to not go to the Olympics. So she is an Olympic-caliber wrestler, I think that's fair to say. Montana De La Rosa is a, a national wrestler just in America, and she's not even like a multiple-time champion at that. Carla Esparza is one of the better women's MMA fighters we have ever seen. I know that's kind of wild to say, but she has won a championship on two separate occasions. Like, she is one of the more credentialed women's MMA fighters we've seen in a long time. And you know she's won the majority of those belts and those fights? All with her grappling and her wrestling. And I'm glad you brought it up because that was the fight I really wanted to focus on. If Tatiana Suarez fights another pure grappler... That's how a lot of these fights are going to end so, up. Because here's the thing. If you're a primary striker who has really good takedown defense, you are going to test Tatiana Suarez because you excel at the one weakness in her game. We saw that in the Nina Nunes fight. That was something I brought up a lot. It was, hey, Suarez is going to look good, but if she doesn't get the finish, it's going to be a little bit curious to see how she looks in the third round. Because the one thing about Nina Nunes is, hey, she has great long-range kicks, and she has really good cardio at that weight class. Now, did Suarez struggle in the third round of that fight? Yes, she did. But I don't think Montana De La Rosa is going to have the long-range abilities so, on the feet that someone like Nunes is able to. De La Rosa, to. big third-round knockdown against Mara Romero Barella. That was a win that De La Rosa has on her record. But for De La Rosa, well-rounded, good with her grappling, good with her submission ability. We've seen her train with a lot of great women in the past. So for majority of her camps, it's been between Elevation Fight Team, but also Genesis BJJ. And we've seen Jinyu Frey train there as well in the strawweight division. But for De La Rosa in the UFC, came in off the Ultimate Fighter season 23 so a few seasons after Suarez she's 5-3 and 1 since that 2017 debut Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu brown belt for De La Rosa and again if you look at it for the boxing De La Rosa has an advantage there for sure over Tatiana Suarez but for the Suarez fight that she had against Carla Sparza a couple of sidekicks and then 25 seconds in, she goes for the first of nine takedown attempts. She ends up with a finish in that matchup. And for Suarez, too, like, you talk about some of the gyms, whether it's Millennium MMA or it's been Extreme Couture for a very long time. You see who she's with on Instagram. 
Patchy Mix, that guy's a pretty good grappler. Very. And the crew that they have at Extreme Torn, I know a lot of people, they're saying, oh, well, I'd like to see if Casey O'Neill fought Aaron Blanchfield. Well, Tatiana Suarez is going to spend time training with Casey O'Neill at Extreme Tour. And Suarez has been there at Extreme Tour for quite some time. And I'll throw it up there. The last time we did a video on Tatiana Suarez, that was like two or three studios ago. You had short hair. Everything was different. The world was just a different place. But for Suarez, a good opportunity to try and right the ship. And we've seen somebody with a long layoff like this come back after years away from a dip. And it was Tyson Pedro. And they gave him fights against Ike Villanueva and Harry Hunsucker before they gave him Modestus Bukowski. Was it Jarges Danhoe? Was he the guy? Heavy the man weight? mountain, Jarges yeah. Danhoe, with a big win Let's over Jorgen DeCastro. I'm proud of myself so, remember that. A good opportunity for Tatiana Suarez. She's a massive favorite in the fight. And I'm not even going to guess at the topology votes. Over 95%. Yeah, I would say they're going to be over 95%. They're 96% out of 701 total votes. I do think Tatiana Suarez wins the fight. I'm eager to see how. The neck injury, the the knee injuries, just the, the constant battle and the grind has been for her. But really glad to see her back in a fight like this because she doesn't leave herself in a lot of compromising positions on the ground. So unless her cardio completely falls off, because again, Nunes was able to rally, like you said, in that third round, I, I do see her getting a victory in this fight. I, I worry about Suarez basically just holding up throughout her MMA career, if I'm being completely honest. And you hate that that's the one thing that you worry about more than her skill set or more than how she's going to look against a lot of her opponents. Because she does remind me a lot of... Remember when American Kickboxing Academy had that terrible run where it was Kane would get hurt, DC would get hurt, Luke Rockhold would get hurt. And it was, hey, you're training so hard with all these world-class guys, you're bound to get hurt at a certain point. For Suarez, she does remind me a little bit of that Jacob deGrom factor. It's, hey, you're almost too talented for what your body can actually withstand. So for Suarez... Hopefully we can see her a lot more in the UFC octagon. Hopefully we can get two or three performances every single year because watching her grapple really is a special thing to witness. Very high level ground and pound. Great submission ability. I highly recommend you go back and watch that Alexa Grasso fight because it was dominant. She gets it was her over down, very quick. Gets her down, takes her back, chokes her out like it was nothing. So I, I do think Suarez is going to look pretty good in this weight class. Both of us going with Extreme Tour Zone, Tatiana Suarez, to get the win in the matchup. The next fight on the card... A guy who hip-thrusted his way to a win, taking on a guy who is on a slide. It's Augusto Sakai taking on Dante Mays. You're not going to want to miss. Keep it locked in with Fighting Apex. We always say, let's, let's get, get into it. it. Brazilian heavyweight Augusto Sakai is kind of like the opening track to the 1989 album called Full Moon Fever. Well, I'm free... Free fallen. We've got Augusto Sakai taking on Lord Kong, Dante Mays, who in his last time out lost a split decision. I've got a little asterisk next to that because it's now no contest on his record. To Egypt's Hamdi Abdel Wahab, and I'll throw it up there right now. A juicy uh, boy. You saw the suspension right there for Hamdi Abdel Wahab, but for Dante Mays, most people expected his judo pedigree and his boxing would win him a fight like that against Abdel Wahab, and he could not stuff many of those takedowns so for Dante Mays he now comes into this matchup he gets a big opportunity all of a sudden against Augusto Sakai a guy who in his last four fights has been finished it started with a string of main events one against Alistair Overeem where Sakai wins the first two rounds and then he just kind of tires out and he gets taken down he then has a main event against Jarzino Rosenstrike gets knocked out he gets beaten by Taitu Ivasa finishing the second round and then his last time out against Sergei Spivak but Matt for Augusto Sakai, he's got to be looking at it going, geez, why do I keep taking these fights at the Apex? Because he's 1-3 at the UFC's Apex, Aye. and now another fight in the small cage for Augusto. 
I don't think it was gonna make that much of a difference, to be completely honest. The problem with the Ghost of Sakai is more of a mentality issue. I really do think, because when he's the aggressive- Who are you to say that it's a mentality issue? Because it comes down to his aggressiveness in the cage. When he's walking forward and throwing output, he's a really successful fighter. When he's moving backwards with just his hands up, he's not a successful fighter. So I would say it comes down to that, because against a guy like Dante Mays, I would say Augusto Sakai is the more well-rounded fighter. He throws a lot more leg kicks. When Augusto Sakai is on his game, I would say he does have the superior output too. Superior output too, as I struggle with putting those two words together. But you just worry about what version of Sakai we're going to get after seeing so many losses in a row. But I will say this. For Sakai, I do feel like Mays is a significant step down from his uh, level of competition up until this point. It's not like, because here's the thing, going from uh, Alistair Overeem down to Tai Tuivasa, well, okay, it's not as bad. But now you're going down to Dante Mays. So I do think for Sakai, this really is a how much do you have left in the tank? Because if he does throw with a lot of volume, if he does keep his hands up, he does have all the tools to deal with a guy like Dante Mays. You just wonder how much uh, Sakai has left in the tank. Because we see guys get knocked out once twice, and then you do wonder about them moving forward. We have now seen Sakai, like you said, get stopped not only four times, but four straight fights. I just worry about where Sakai is in his overall career. No, and that's it. For Sakai, his last time out was in August against Sergei Spivak, who just made a Veneta card, got a big win over Derek Lewis, and for Dante Mays, that fight against Hamdi Abdelwahab was about the same type of time frame. Before that, wins over Josh Parisian and Roki Martinez, and against Martinez, pushed a pace, held him back against Josh Parisian. Got him down to the mat. Got him finished. And you look at the losses that Mays has in the UFC because he's 2-2. Two, two. Our two and two with an no contest. Sid Ogon was one of the losses, and then the other loss as well to Rodrigo Nascimento, who's got a big time fight coming up on his slate. And when he's on, he's a very impressive fighter. So for Mays, we know he's got the judo pedigree. We know he's got pretty good boxing in his back pocket. He's a longtime Jackson Wink guy, and he's going to be, you know, obviously getting John Jones ready for his big time upcoming fight against Sid Ogon, and he's going to have that experience in his back pocket of getting heel hooked in the third round. But for Augusto Sakai, like, Think about it. He beat Blagoy Ivanov. He was ranked 10th. Then when he fought uh, Alistair Overeem, he was bumped up. He's ranked 9th. Now all of a sudden, Sakai is out of the rankings. It's a big-time gym matchup. American top team against Jackson Wink MMA. But when you look at this matchup, Matt, like... It really is hard to tell. I What version of Augusto Sakai are you going to get? Because Dante Mays is pretty much the same version of Dante Mays in every fight. Like, again, he did struggle against the takedowns of former bare-knuckle MMA fighter Hamdi Abdel-Wahab. But apart from that, like, he's able to go out there, land pretty decent volume, good boxing combinations. And if it really does come down to it, toss that cup into a guy's mouth. Ah, uh, I hope we don't see that. I just think, if you look at, okay, what's the best version of both guys? Sakai's by far the better fighter in that scenario. Now, again, we have seen Sakai struggle against some of the upper echelon fighters, but the one thing that a lot of those guys have in common is, A, they can threaten with the takedown, not necessarily Rosenstrike and Tuivasa, but what do uh, Rosenstrike, Tuivasa, and Pavlovich all do extremely well that Dante Mays doesn't? Sakai hasn't fought Pavlovich. Sorry. What? Uh, who did Sakai just get knocked out by? Sergey Spivak. Sergey Spivak. Sorry, Sergey's got mixed up in my head. What do all those fighters do? They cut the cage off extremely well, and I do think that's going to be the question for Dante Mays. If he just throws with his boxing combinations and doesn't move his feet behind them, I think he's going to find himself chasing Augusto Sakai for a lot of this fight. And if that's the case, this isn't going to be a great fight to watch, because Sakai on the front foot when he is throwing with combinations is a pretty exciting fighter to watch. Like, I wouldn't say he is a stale heavyweight by any means, and I think we did see that in the 
the Alistair Overeem fight because he threw a lot of volume, especially early on in that fight. Like you said, he did get tired, but you don't necessarily worry about that in a three-round atmosphere like this fight. I just think about what Sakai can be on his best day. And when you compare that against what Dante Mays is on his best day, Mays might be able to be competitive with some of the boxing, but I do think he's going to struggle in some of those clinch positions. And I'll be curious to see if either guy does go for a takedown in this fight or if we'll just primarily get a lot of strength. I've struggled with Sakai fights, and we talk about the last five fights. I even thought Sakai lost against Blagoy Ivanov or was that on his way grab. to losing in that when he grabbed the fence. He was getting taken mm -hmm. down. Sakai doesn't look good in a meaningful amount of time. But I picked him again and again and again and again because when he's pressuring forward, he keeps his head back and he throws a lot on his shots. He's got good zip at the end of it, but he throws a lot of volume. And he's one of those heavyweights that is decently well-rounded, and that's what got him all the way up into the top 10. Now, all of a sudden, he's unranked. So the odds in this matchup, Matt, they're actually at par. Dante Mays looking for his first win in a little over a year. Augusto Sakai in about two and a half years since he beat Blagoy Ivanov. We have a look at the topology vote. Surprise to us there, to you. I think the fans are kind of like that old Richard Marks song. Hold on to the night. I think they're holding on to the memories. I think they're going to have Sakai. I'm going to say over under 67.5% Augusto Sakai. I think it'll be in the 80s, to be honest, for Sakai. No, it's under. So 691 total votes, 64% Sakai, 60% by decision. For the 36% of the fans who have Maze, 64% by knockout, which makes sense because Sakai's been finished in his last four fights. So... Listen, it's a big-time opportunity. I thought Sakai would have been gone after that loss, like four straight knockout losses at heavyweight. That's kind of usually a telling tale, but Sakai could be like a Marcin Tybor, and he just turns the clock around. Good. So big-time opportunity for him. I do have Sakai. I think he's a little bit more fleet of foot, and I do like the volume. But Mays, with the power of the boxing and the takedowns from those judo clenches, there's a good opportunity there, and obviously the odds reflect that. Uh, this isn't a perfect example, but this fight reminds me a little bit of when Dan Hooker lost a lot of fights against the elite of the elite and then fought Claudio Poyez. It was like, okay, this is the proper fight for where you are in your career to try to get you back on track. Because if Sakai beats Mays, probably won't get a top 15 guy next. Maybe he'll get that 14, 15th guy, but I do think it will get Sakai enough of momentum back so that he'll keep on getting some more bigger names after this one. I do have a good Sakai in this matchup because I do think he is the more well-rounded guy. I do like his output when he is on his A-game, but I worry about how much he has left when it comes to durability because Dottail Mays hits really, really hard, and if he is able to land some of those elbows in tight and then follow up with boxing combinations, I can see a world where Mays is able to get Sakai hurt and then finish him, but I do have a good Sakai. This is one of those poster fights like when Overeem fought Lesnar 6-6 versus 6-3 a couple of big time heavyweights banging it out on the weekend Matt both of us going with Augusto Sakai to get the win let us know down below in the comment section who you have in the next fight co-main event Andrea Muniz grappling ace taking on Brendan Allen he's Bangkok ready he is Brendan Allen a big time matchup in that co-main event you're not going to want to miss it keep it locked in with fighting Apex we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it. time middleweight co-main event this is not like zach paunga taking on jordan ray this is a big time fight in this division that holds rankings in regards we have the ranked fighter andrea muniz he's looking to put that squeaky clean ufc record up against the former lfa middleweight champ he shares our last name he watches the videos and if we don't pick him he doesn't like it all that much we have all in brandon allen representing killcliffe fc a guy who's really put it together in his last three fights picking up big wins over sam alvey by finish jacob alcoon by decision and christoph jaco saying hey 
Enjoy the PFL, Kristoff, picking up a big-time first-round finish win in that matchup where, if you remember, it was Allen, Jocko jockeying for position. Jocko gets the takedown, and then out of it, Allen's able to reverse and sink in a great choke to get that first-round submission win. So for Allen, really where he's been all-in is throughout his career, he switched through gyms. He was a Rufus Sport guy. He's originally out of Louisiana, but he spent a lot of camps at... What was it called? Hard Knocks 365, then Sanford MMA, now Killcliffe FC. And for Allen, his striking's definitely taken a leap up. And even if you look at the last two losses, one to Chris Curtis where he gets kind of hit and then need the fight that he had against Sean Strickland, he struggled against those guys. But you look at the wins that Brennan Allen's been able to get, and it's really been mixing his martial arts oh, yeah. in a lot of these fights to get the wins. Whereas for Andrea Muniz... He did the unthinkable. I mean, he broke Jacare Souza's arm, which is crazy at the time to think of. Jacare, not a guy getting submitted very often. Maybe getting knocked out, but not submitted. Wins over Ahoyo. Bartosz Fabinski, that was a performance of the night bonus. He beats Eric Anders by finish, and he gets the win over Uriah Hall. And even in the fight against Eric Anders, Anders had some successes in that matchup that maybe Brandon Allen's able to draw off of. But if you look at Muniz's last fight up against Uriah Hall, a little bit of a stinker. Held position in a lot of that. It wasn't a good one. Wasn't necessarily the most fun fight that we've ever seen, but a good opportunity for Muniz to take on a game opponent and a guy like Brendan Allen. 100%, but I keep on falling back to the feeling that I get that this is somewhat of a setup fight for a guy like Andrea Muniz because Brendan Allen, and you brought it up, is an extremely well-rounded fighter, but... Brennan Allen, when he initiates a lot of his own grappling, is getting taken down. It's due to a knockdown. It's not necessarily due to his overall dominant wrestling. It's not due to his overall dominant grappling. It's normally because, like you had said, he is able to mix his martial arts. And I will be curious to see, if he does have an advantage on the feet, will it be a power advantage on the feet? Because I do think he has a much more varied amount of strikes. He throws that body kick to very high effect. He does have good leg kicks too, and I do think those could be a factor in this matchup because Muniz on the feet is not a high volume guy whatsoever and that is how a lot of his opponents are going to beat him if he does start to lose to these upper echelon guys think of like Robert Whitaker for instance it's gonna be a lot of defended takedowns a lot of outside striking and Brennan Allen can follow somewhat of that blueprint but the issue I have is even go back to the Kevin Holland fight like Kevin Holland is a very talented grappler but he's not a big guy for this weight class he's not the strongest guy for this weight class he hurts Allen gets his back they grapple for a lot and Allen does have success grappling against Kevin Lee the problem is he's in the that position and that's what I keep on going back to even if he has success against other guys in some of these similar positions I thought Andre I thought it would be a cold day in H-E-L-L when Jacare Souza would get submitted in an MMA cage and I'd eat my words when Andre Muniz is able to prove pretty much everybody wrong and show that he really is that one of one type of submission ace like we talk about one hit one knockout power Andre Muniz has that capability with a lot of his jiu-jitsu and I know like you said he wasn't necessarily able to demonstrate that against Uriah Hall that was a weird fight where he never really got secure position on Hall there was a lot of these like I'm kind of moving away from you. You're kind of moving away from me. I'm just trying to hold you down. I don't think we're going to see that position as much. I think Brennan Allen, although this isn't a great recommendation, he will be more likely to grapple with a guy like Muniz. I don't think he's just going to be on the defense originally. So I do think that will give Muniz the opportunity to progress through his grappling sequences. Yeah, and I mean, three weeks ago, an interview came out with friend of the show, Ryan Gerald. Brennan Allen says, BJJ will not save Andrea Muniz at UFC Vegas 70. And for Allen, the deep dive that I did getting ready for a matchup like this Allen Orthodox Muniz's Southpaw. Brendan Allen's fought a F ton of Southpaws in the UFC and around the UFC. He's fought Tom Breeze, Kyle Dacus, uh Carl Robertson, Puna Soriano, Sam Alvey, Christoph Jocko. 
He's won all six of those fights, so he doesn't struggle against Southpaws at all. He's able to figure out the game plan there. And in the fight that he had against Jaco, again, performance bonus, first round submission great. win. He looked really good in that matchup. The strikings continue to progress. He moves his head a little bit more than he has in other fights. He's really, really rounded things out. For Muniz, it should be said. I mean, listen, the guy's 5-0 in the UFC. He's won, what, his last nine fights since 2016. And his last loss was to the professional, changed the nickname, Azamat Mirzakhanov, a light heavyweight guy to look out for. So, Matt, in a matchup like this, honestly, myself, I do struggle with this prediction because for Muniz in the five fights in the UFC, Antonio Hoyo, little one-dimensional, little bit of a striker, and that's it. Bartosz Fabinski, good at judo, good with takedowns, leaves his head out there all the time on his takedown. Jacare, we know how good Jacare is. He can't discount that at all. Eric Anders was a good battle. That was really impressive. Battle. That was really impressive too. And the fight against Shariah Hall was a little bit of a stinker. Muniz is a favorite, about a two to one in this one. I, I do have a hard time with this. So I'm going to topology votes first. I'm going to say over under. I think the fans will go with Muniz. I'm going to say over under 70% Muniz. I think they'll be in the 80s for him. You're going to be in the 80s? They are. So 733 total votes. Uh, 84% Muniz. 68% by submission for the 16% that have Allen. 66% by decision. The Michael Jordan of grappling is what uh, Mike Goldberg would say. <sighs> Shouldn't call anybody Travis that. Travis Luter. This is my big problem, and I kind of mentioned it earlier on in the video. Brennan Allen will play the game of grappling with a guy like Andrea Muniz, and I just think that's the worst game plan possible. If he had a little bit more power on the feet, I do think Allen's the better striker. He's the more varied striker, but he's not one of these one-hitter-quitter kind of guys, and I think that would help him a lot against a guy like Muniz because it makes it so that if you're just perfect for that one second, you can get the win, whereas I think Allen, to win this fight, is probably more likely to win it by decision. It's going to be tough to go out there and knock out a guy like Muniz because even if you hurt him, he can just go back into his full guard and kind of play that Damian Maya style of a game where, again, fans don't necessarily like it, but when you're as dangerous as Muniz is on the mat, you can get away with doing some techniques like that, so I do have Muniz for what he's able to uh, demonstrate with his grappling up until this point, but again, like you had mentioned, Allen has been able to improve with his striking. He came into the UFC thought of very much as a pure grappler, and now he is a very well-rounded fighter, so I could see Allen getting well, the win, but I just think Muniz's grappling is a little too dominant. And you think about it too, like he's got a teammate who's gone through a similar fight, went out there, got the knockout, put his hands up, and then ended up. It was the fight that Gilbert Burns had against Damian Maya. So the Allen way, I'm going to pop a fortune cookie. And we're going to see what the fortune is for Brendan Allen. Matt, it says, Il est bon de dire la vérité. It is proper to speak the truth. So we got to speak the truth. My truth is, I think Muniz going to probably win by submission. My truth is, I, I, I'm going to pick Muniz as well, but I, Brendan Allen's got an awesome shot as an underdog in this fight. You can't overlook Brendan Allen whatsoever. The advancements that he's made in his game plan... To a guy like Muniz, Muniz has been out there, if you go on his Instagram, training his boxing, but also competing in jiu-jitsu tournaments and winning them as well. It's just, how does Muniz get it to the place where he needs to get it? Is it off an Allen takedown? Because I don't know if Muniz is going to be able to take down Allen, and Allen definitely has better striking than Muniz in this matchup. So, I'm ever so slightly going with Andrea Muniz. You let us know down below in the comments section who you have. Do you like the taste of fortune cookies? I do. A big-time matchup in the main event. Nikita Krylov taking on Ryan Spann. Keep it locked in with Fight Night Picks, we always say. Like. Let's get into it. Main event time coming up this weekend at UFC's Apex. We have, for the first time in his 18-fight UFC career, a main event slot. Five rounds for the former Fight Nights Global champ. It is Nikita Krylov 
taking on Superman, Ryan Spann. Matt, do you think he likes that Eminem song? I could be your Superman. Your Superman. Your Superman. He has a tattoo on his chest of it, so I'm gonna say yes, probably. Yeah, and he might like the comics as well, but for Ryan Spann, you look at the run that he's had throughout his overall career, and there's definitely been a lot of adversity. We could say that about both fighters, but Spann, unsuccessful for the LFA heavy or light heavyweight championship, his first run through. He took on Leo Lechi. That was for the middleweight champ over there with Legacy way back when. Then he was able to win the championship with LFA for uh, that light heavyweight belt. He fights on Dana White Contender Series against Carl Robertson, doesn't get the win, builds himself back up. You know the story by now, but the last little run that he's had, it's been absolute burn burner. I mean, his fight against Johnny Walker was wild. His fight against Misha Serkinov netted him a performance bonus. He loses to Anthony Smith in his first main event opportunity with the UFC. And then it's a win over Iwan Kutselaba. And his last time out, it's that power jab. And then that right hand that just sent Dominic Reyes like a tumbling sack of bricks. His last time out on a pay-per-view card, no less. So a giant win for Ryan Spann his last time out. And for Nikita Krylov, the highs have been high. You look at his first fight in the UFC at heavyweight as a young, fresh-faced kid. He gets finished. And then he goes out there and knocks out Walt Harris. So some crazy things for Nikita Krylov. But all the way now, his last two fights... He finishes Alexander Gustafsson. Whoever would have thought that that would be a sense that we'd utter. Just even think about it. And Some then Krylov's last time out, exactly, in the first round against Volkan Uzdemir. I mean, he got banged like Lee Sand in the 90s. And then he withstood that. And even one of the judges, 30-27 out there, good second round, good third round. Nikita Krylov was able to withstand that punishment and just keep on ticking and really show why he's become a durable, well-rounded fighter in some of these matchups. A durable, well-rounded fighter in some of... It's like Sex Panther. It works 60% of the time every single time. Nikita Krylov is a lot like the Death Star in Star Wars. It's really pretty and fancy when you look at it from the outside, but it tends to have that one weakness that if you can exploit, it all goes to hell. And that's the thing for Nikita Krylov. Never been knocked down in light heavyweight, that's but great. he's been put on skates. Nikita Krylov defensively does have some liabilities, not only with his striking, but even defensively with some of his grappling. He's one of these fighters who, from top position, when he's able land his own ground opponent. He has very good elbows in the top position. He does a great job of kind of, you know, softening up his opponent to go for his own submissions, but when he does fight other guys who do have more of a wrestling advantage over him, even go back and watch the Jan Blahovich fight. And I know Jan is a very good fighter, but grappling isn't necessarily the first thing you think of when you think about Jan Blahovich. and he was able to get Krylov's back, uh, apply the rear naked choke. He looked really good with his own grappling in that matchup, and that's why I've always had a really hard time predicting a Nikita Krylov fight, because the highs are so high, but the lows can be very low too and he does have a very wonky style of fighting it's very it's on the outside he keeps his hands kind of low he'll throw a lot of kicks he has a heavy hand at fighter but that's the one thing i will say he does not want to get into a boxing match with a guy like ryan span because the one thing that i do worry about for span in this matchup is and you would kind of mention it his last two losses are to johnny walker and anthony smith Two long-range, kick-heavy, light heavyweights who can stand far away from you and force you to walk into a lot of their shots. Now, Krylov will stand a little bit more upright. He's not as lean back as those two previous opponents are, but he can uh, use a lot of those similar game plans that we have seen. If he uses the low kick effectively, that's something Ryan Spann does struggle with. He doesn't necessarily have a great answer for it right away, but again, I just worry about Nikita Krylov getting too comfortable on the feet. If he's not able to get his kicks involved in this matchup, I could see him having a lot of uh, difficult times, especially 
especially with Spain early on in the fight, because I don't care what you thought about Dominic Reyes, and I didn't know what Dominic Reyes had left in him. I didn't think Ryan Spann had that type of performance in his back pocket. Yeah, Ryan Spann fights like he, you know, he's got a park, a car parked outside, and he hasn't fed the meter, so he's got to get, yeah. he's got to get really quick and get moving. And for Spann, yeah, he's not paid by the hour. And if you look at it for Nikita Krylov. He can play the long game, and that's not always the fun thing, but some fights, they're barn burners. But some fights, like his fight against Johnny Walker, he fought to his game plan, he took him down, he was just a wet blanket over him. So MMA math says, well, Johnny Walker beat Ryan Spann by knockout, and Nikita Krylov beat Johnny Walker by decision, Krylov wins, but it's not that way. Because for Spann, he's been susceptible to that finish twice. Once against Carl Robertson, Arms locked, up against the cage, elbows land, Span's finished. Same thing happened against Johnny Walker. For Span, what does he do so well? He's so tall and he's so big. I don't know how he made middleweight before because he's a giant he light heavyweight. He stands kind of like this and he lands that really good jab, but he'll double up on the jab to disguise his right hand and he pumps it out there really quick and there's a ton of power on both the shots. Again, it's not often that you see somebody with power jab knockout wins, but that's what they credit Span with in his last fight against Dominic Reyes, where Reyes is walking in, Span stepped forward with it, and then the right hand came in and knocked him down. But if you look at the Span wins, again, like and, and even some of the losses, the fight against Iwan Kutsalaba. Kutsalaba goes out there, gets a takedown, ends up in mount, and then all of a sudden Span's bucking him off. Span puts both legs in it like a bunny rabbit, kicks him completely off up against the cage, and then spans back up again. Kutsalaba gets a little bit wild and reckless. He's going to fight Tanner Bozer next, which is a little bit wild. Span, like Aaron Blanchfield, standing guillotine, pulls it up, and then spins and lands on top, and he gets the guillotine finish. For Span, the only trouble is, you mentioned it, the fight that he had against Anthony Smith, how did that fight go? They strike for a little bit. Span then gets the back of Smith, picks him up, and walks him across the cage, Smith is like, what's going on? Span gets down. He has a lot of success. And then all of a sudden, out of all the scrambles, Smith is getting on top because he did put him on skates. He he gets gets him into a rear naked choke position. Smith ends up getting the win. They draw after the fight, so on and so forth. Span is such an interesting fighter because he's a decent grappler. He's a really good striker. It's just bringing it all together in the cage. And for Nikita Krylov, his defensive grappling can kind of get caught because he becomes like happy feet with his own grappling. That's so weird. And he takes big expenditures in some of these fights. So again, you already brought up some of the fights, but he had back-to-back losses. One to Magomed Ankalaev. That's Nikita Krylov's only UFC fight in Vegas to this point. His one loss to Magomed Ankalaev. And then he fought Paul Craig, where he was just landing those big shots. Paul Craig was six ways to Sunday. And then all of a sudden, like The Undertaker, he came back. If you look at it for Ryan Spann in Vegas, he's 3-3. Three and three, So at least he has a few wins to negative. his ledger that way. So big-time matchup. Obviously, again, master sport and a black belt in Kyokushin Karate for Nikita Krylov. And you see that a little bit out of his style. But I think even in the thumbnail, I hope I kind of hit it. Because Krylov in the in-between sometimes... Boy, does he ever get hit in some of these fights. And I don't know if you know this, but Ryan Spann hits so effing hard in those in-betweens that this is a really dangerous fight for Krylov. But again, Krylov has the more methods to win this fight. He does have the improved grappling, but that's the weird thing about Krylov and his grappling. I have no idea what my opinion uh, is of Nikita Krylov on the mat. I've seen him get submitted by Paul Craig, which is the end of the world. A lot of good fighters have been submitted by Paul Craig. But sometimes in long grappling sequences, he can look dominant. And other times, he does seem to be a bit of a step behind. So for those reasons, I don't think Spann's 
going to have success in the grappling in this matchup. I will say that. If Spain goes for a takedown, I think it'll be one of those where Nikita Krylov's butt hits the ground and they get right back up. We might see a little bit more clinch control from that. I think it's a very dangerous fight for Krylov to fight if he's the one on the back foot uh, trying to measure Ryan Spann for a power shot because Spann moving forward is a terrifying force to deal with. But I do find myself uh, favoring Krylov just because he does have the more methods in this fight. I mean, in these main event videos, like, just going right off, like, there's, there's, a, there's a style. Well, I just, uh, we've set it up six ways to Sunday, as you have said, and for Krylov, it's just interesting, because both these guys have fought a lot of fighters in the top 15, and it does get to be a point where we've seen with Derek Lewis, for instance, you beat a lot of guys in the top 15, you've lost to a lot of guys in the top 15, at a certain point, until you do look really dominant and have really impressive finishes over these guys, people aren't going to care as much. So I just think Krylov has a very important fight form ahead of him because he has the fighting style that could get him maybe not a title just because 205 is so wide open right now, but could get him one of those really exciting matchups, maybe another fight against Anankalaev. It's just he wow. needs to go out there and look really good against Spain. I think the winner of this fight gets the returning Alexander Rakic. And if you That'd look at it at Fight Night Picks over in the YouTube community tab, we threw it out there to you folks. You have number six. Krilov taking on number eight Ryan Span. 51% with Krilov, like 49% it. with Ryan Span. The comments, Classical Andrew, thought the Uzdemir fight was an impressive performance for Krilov. For some reason, I don't find myself putting too much stock in those last two Span wins. I got Krilov by sub. The one and only Krilov is going to expose Span for being a glass cannon. That's rude. Uh, Bo, Span is dangerous early, but I don't trust him the longer the fight goes on. And let's see, Mark, I wonder if Span bothered training. Seemed to work in his favor last time. I mean, he did look really good his last time out. The odds ever so slightly favoring Nikita Krylov in this matchup. Span, we've seen it like this fight against Noguera, this fight against Sam Alvey. As they went on, it did kind of wear on him a little bit. For Nikita Krylov, he also does expend a lot this of energy. This might not in be a fights. good fight if we get into the championship. Rounds. Yeah, it could be a little bit of a stinker. So it is a tricky one. Topology. Close as well, 55% on topology, 51% fighting Apex with Krilov. So you're saying Krilov gets the win in this one. But I agree with the topology voters and our voters too. I think this is as close to a 50-50 fight as any on the card. Because again, for Krilov to have a lot of success, he has to mix his martial arts. But for him to do that, he's going to be put into positions where Ryan Spann can easily win by knockout. So for those reasons, I would not be surprised whatsoever to see Ryan Spann get an early finish like he's been able to do throughout the majority of his career. But I do think Krilov, with his kicks, with his own... Uh, power ability with his hands. I do favor him ever so slightly in this matchup. But again, I like how the votes have been split down the middle. I do appreciate that from the fans. The I like how they have The slight underdog last week getting the win. Aaron Blanchfield over Jessica Andrade. Could it repeat itself again? I'll go Nikita Krylov ever so slightly. I had him against Gustafsson. I had him against Uzdemir. I do like the advancements in his striking a little bit. He leaves himself out there defensively. Uzdemir hits really hard. You knew him for no time when he was on his rise up to that title shot. A little bit less so. He's kind of pulled back oh, on the power yeah. a little bit, but he's added into the volume. And Nikita Krylov was able to get himself through that, really work his own grappling. I think Krylov can have success like Smith was able to do, like some of the guys in the regional scene. I know Robert Drysdale, like that's all he is, is the jiu-jitsu. He's so good at jiu-jitsu. So I'm ever so slightly going to go with Nikita Krylov. But such a really tough fight to try and make a pick on, Matt. And some big-time fights that are on this card. Seven UFC debuts. I know there's a lot of them that we're really looking forward to. I think my favorite fight on the card, it might sound crazy, 
That Eric Gonzalez fight against Trevor Peak, I'm going to talk myself into that one. That should be a burn burn. I'm really excited for the return of Tatiana Suarez, especially against a fighter like Montana De La Rosa, who might not get the fanfare, she might not get the glitz and glamour, but that's a solid, well-rounded fighter, and I think we'll learn yeah. a lot about how uh, Suarez is going to look, not only at 125, but at 115 moving forward. I just think that's a good opponent to put Suarez in there with in her first fight back. Well, Matt, I'm going to be away this week, but if there are any changes to this card, we'll do it remote. We'll make sure we make those updates to this as we always do. Question our kicks it's going to be on saturday we will do that one probably from a hotel room we'll see how that one goes so make sure you keep it tuned in at fight name picks twitter instagram at craig allen fnp at matt allen fnp here on the channel as well a lot of new folks have been oh, yeah. subscribing and tossing the likes it really does help the channel grow so we thank you so much for that keep it locked in with fight name picks as we always say let's, let's get, get into it, it.